0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mr Barton maths podcast with me Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around I spoke to Peps McRae. Peps is a former fast-track maths teacher and senior lecturer in mathematics education. He's been a national curriculum advisor for the DFE, external examiner at the OU, and is the author of Lean Lesson Planning and Memorable Teaching. Peps has three master's degrees in engineering design, educational leadership and educational research, and holds fellowship awards from the University of Brighton and the Young Academy. PEPPS now leads on the Institute for Teaching's Masters in Expert Teaching course. In short, I was once again well out of my depth. Now look, I absolutely love Pep's books on lesson planning and memorable teaching. In fact, I can look at them now behind me on my bookshelf, and there'll be links to those books in the show notes, and I am fascinated by the challenges of developing expertise in teaching. Hence, I've been wanting to get Pep's on the show for ages, and believe me, he did not disappoint. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and much more besides. Does PEPs believe you can teach problem solving? And if so, how? What are PEPs' seven habits of highly effective lesson plans? And what are the practical implications of implementing these? How can teachers work together to joint plan effectively? What are the key principles of memorable teaching? And how can we design our teaching to lead to more memorable experiences for our students? What does Peps think of my ideas about keeping still, teaching in silence, and getting rid of all classroom displays in terms of his understanding of memory? How would Peps present a worked example? Is there a consensus as to what expert teaching looks like? Can you judge how good a teacher is from a lesson observation? Can the principles of deliberate practice be applied to teacher education? And what would PEPs consider to be three essential research findings or principles that all teachers should know? Now, I don't want to build this up too much, but I'm going to have to. This is one of those special episodes. I reckon I need to listen to it about 48 times to take in all the nuggets. It's also one to share with your non-maths colleagues, as the vast majority of Pepsi's points about planning, memory and the development of expertise are applicable to all teachers and all subjects. So please spread the word. And if you enjoy this episode or any of the other 30 odd that I've done, then a quick review on iTunes would be hugely appreciated. I'd also like to take this opportunity to officially announce that I have written a book. It is called How I Wish i Taught Maths, with the subtitle Reflections on Research, Interviews with Experts and 12 Years of Mistakes. And it is being published by John Cat Education, the home of such wonderful books as What Every Teacher Needs to Know About Psychology and the recent What Does It Look Like in the Classroom. My book is essentially a collection of all the lessons I've learned from speaking to my wonderful podcast guests, reading the books and the research they pointed me to, and trying out ideas in the classroom. It is very much a tale of regret when I think back to all the things I used to do, but hopefully it will be of interest to you, my dear listeners. It is currently being read by Chris Bolton, and assuming I survived that experience, I hope it will be available before Christmas. Anyway, enough book plugging. Without further ado, let me introduce Peps McRae. I'll be back at the end with my takeaway as usual. Oh, and listen out for Peps trying to restructure the interview at numerous stages. Deary me, it's a good job he was such a good guest. Anyway, enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Pep, so we're going to start, as ever, with your math speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh,
1: okay, favourite number, I reckon, is three. Um, because it is both a very simple number, but a very powerful number. Particularly um, if you think about it in like a functional context. Um, so imagine like building a geodesic dome or something like that. Uh, like, putting three struts together... Allows you to form like an incredibly strong structure, but it uses like the least number of possible components. And I think that that balance between simplicity and strength
0: is one that I like massively admire. Nice, I like that simplicity and strength. That excellent, excellent choice, Beth. Well, how about uh, num- number two then? What What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Uh, okay, so no surprise then. I'm a big fan of mechanics.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but I also a lot of respect for statistics as well. Um, I think both um, domains are, are really powerful for helping to explain the world around us and for giving us um, a more like, reliable intuition, I'd say. Um, mechanics comes fairly easily. Oh, statistics I find really, really hard. I'd <laughs> love to have a better intuition around statistics someday, someday. <laughs>
0: that's that's interesting because you always get this split well i find anyway between mechanics and stats so i i cannot stand mechanics and i have to really force myself i don't have any intuition when it comes to it i have to really try and force faked enthusiasm when i when i'm teaching it whereas stats give me a normal distribution all day long and i'm yeah more more than happy so
1: so what's what's going on there like why why do people fall into one camp more than the other
0: yeah it's 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 a difficult one i think I think a lot of it's down to your science background. So I was never a massive fan of of science, and particularly physics. And I think I certainly see it with the kids I teach. If they do physics, then they tend tend to enjoy the mechanics because it's kind of a two for one job. You you're helping your physics out, you're helping your maths out. Whereas I was psychology and economics, which lends itself to to stats, I guess a, a bit more. So maybe there's something in that. I don't I don't know. Have you a theory?
1: Yeah, no. I reckon I reckon you're right. It's kind of like a a prior knowledge snowball effect you know, yes the more you know about something the more interested and enthusiastic you are about learning about it um, and that like quickly just
0: specializes you into one of those other camps i think you're right well we've, we've solved that that dialogue there <laughs> so we're flying here and um, what about question number three then if you weren't involved in education what job would you do uh
1: you can probably guess here um so uh, an engineer i think <laughs> maybe a like, civil or mechanical software engineer, anything really that is, like is human-centred design, trying to solve problems for people. Um, I think like the thing with engineering, the beautiful thing with engineering, is that it's like a blend of science and art. Um, so you have to, like, if you're building a bridge, if you're a civil engineer building a bridge, you have to draw upon all of the underpinning science that allows you to construct that bridge, you know, material science and FEA and vibrations. Um but you also have to be creative in how you apply that understanding to like the unique situation you're working with. Like no two chasms are the same and therefore no two bridges are the same, but they're built using the same underpinning like theory as it were. Um, and I'd think like um I'd say that teaching is very similar in many ways. We draw upon like, um, an underpinning understanding of how learning works, but every, like, every classroom situation and every pupil is unique, and so we have to construct like, unique situations or construct unique practices using like, similar underpinning principles.
0: Nice. Hey, I like hey, good, good analogy. I, I like that. And did you with, with the um, engineering? And we'll, we'll talk about this one when we, when we discuss your career very shortly. But um, was that ever on the cards, Pep? Or so was it always teaching for you?
1: Uh, yeah. So I did. Like I did um, masters in engineering uh, back in the day. Um, but I kind of very quickly ran up against this wall where I just wasn't getting to interact with people enough. Um, and although the process was fascinating trying to solve problems and use like really interesting tools to solve those problems um, it was just a bit far removed from like yeah people for me
0: got it got it well well from there let, let's pick it up from there then so you've you, you've done your, your master's in engineering w- where did you go from there perhaps
1: yeah so um did a few placements figured out that it wasn't quite the right domain for me um my my mom's a teacher um, and all like her five of her sisters are teachers and so it was only a matter of time before um, I had to consider that as an option and so I <laughs> went and um, yeah, did my uh, PGC in secondary maths down in Brighton um, in like 2003 2004 something like that and just loved it absolutely loved it and then I uh, was really fortunate to get a first post in like a brand new school down on the south coast serving like a, you know, a, an area of deprivation of aspiration mostly um, but had an opportunity there just to construct a lot of our practice within the maths team from scratch and um, after that got a chance to work in a, in a national challenge school as a head of department to try and like turn things around a little bit um, for a few years before moving into the University of Brighton as the um, head of the PGC maths course and did that for about seven years or so which takes me up to this year. And at the start of this year, I joined a new graduate school for education or graduate school for teachers called the Institute for Teaching, which is launching this week. Um, and their uh, thing is, their single purpose is to help teachers keep getting better. Um, and my role there is leading on a master's and expert teaching programme, um, yeah, which is aimed at helping proficient teachers to become the world's best teachers, so it's a pretty exciting project at the minute.
0: That is, yeah, that that sounds absolutely fascinating and we're going to dig deep into teaching expertise and, and helping teachers get better later on. So that, that's absolutely fantastic, Peps. But before we get to that, there's no avoiding this bit. It's my, it's my favourite part of the show. It's my guest's least favourite part of the show, I think. But what I want you to do is I want you to just think back to your, your time teaching and, and think back to a lesson that didn't go um, as you intended it to go. And I wonder if you could just talk us through it, but crucially, tell us what you learned from that experience, Peps.
1: Yeah, so it's it's been a while since I've taught math in a classroom, um, but like there are some things that I remember that just didn't work for me, um, and in particular, I think my efforts at trying to help my pupils become better problem solvers just never really seems to work. Um, you know, I I I, I put a lot of thought into the design of my lessons, construct some really interesting activities, um, but like they just never really got better at problem solving because of what I did. And I think like what I've, it's sort of been a thorn in my side over the years trying to figure out like what's going on, what what, what is problem solving in mathematics, you know, and what approach do we have as a profession and is that approach, does that approach like, does that approach work and what's it grounded in? Um, and like more and more, the more I understand about cognitive science in particular, the more I start to question certainly some of the approaches that I took, which were based mostly around trying to help my pupils to latch on to a process that I thought would help them become better problem solvers. Um, and although I think a process is important, you know, coming from an engineering background, I think a like, process can be really powerful. I think it it only takes you so far. And if I was in the classroom now trying to help my pupils to become a better problem solver, I would do a lot more work around just helping them to develop like a wide range of experiences of problem solving or perhaps a better way to say that would be I would just walk them through as many possible problems as I could in the time available. And I think like just the experience of having access to a variety of problems and their solutions is probably, I think, the best thing you can do to help your pupils to become a better problem solver.
0: Now this is interesting, this Peps, because this is this is an area that fascinates me. I'm a little bit obsessed with with problem solving, and I've I've asked numerous guests about whether they believe problem solving is something that can be taught, and people seem to have definite views on this. So um, Ed Southall, who I interviewed, was was definite that you could teach problem solving, and he talked a lot about learned behaviours being being one way of doing this. And um, Andrew Blair, um, about when we talked about inquiry maths, was convinced that problem solving, and specifically the process for for successfully carrying out inquiries could be taught whereas i know for example chris bolton is is very much of the view that problem solving is a very difficult thing and it's it's certainly not a generic skill that can be taught so are you saying that these kind of exposure to to as many problems as possible are they are they kind of one-off problems that you're hoping that students will learn some kind of generic problem-solving skill or finite set of problem-solving skills or, or or is there a bit more to it than that I wonder if you could just just talk a little bit more about that perhaps
1: yeah so I think like um I would I would kind of <laughs> it's a bit of a weak answer but I would say that there is truth in what Ed and Andrew and Chris are saying and that actually you need a bit of both and I think either just focusing on the process or just focusing on building uh, knowledge of the different problems available both those approaches are insufficient on their own um, in order to develop like really good problem solvers i think in my understanding the more the more problems you have access to uh, internally uh, just in your mind the more solution solutions you have access to and what that allows you to do is to be able to construct more creatively and more critically new and novel solutions. So it's kind of like I'd say that the skill of problem solving arises out of having a lot of knowledge about, of, of solutions to problems, but also like thinking about the similarities and differences between all those different solutions you have in your mind um, and the, the, the common processes that those solutions share. If that makes sense,
0: yeah, I, I think it does, and I know we're kind of going off on tangency, which is my, my <laughs> speciality on, on these interviews. But just because this is an area that fascinates me, I wonder, Pepsi, did, did you have an uh, opinion on kind of what makes a good problem, or did you have like a favourite source when you were when you were trying to get your kids comfortable and familiar with with problem solving?
1: So I'd say like um, the best problem is one that students can solve
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah nice <laughs> so,
1: so, so like the best problem is, is is one that is just one step removed from something that they can already solve yes that makes sense because what we like what i i find is not helpful is giving students problems that are just so far out of their reach that just don't make any sense and they kind of even if you do provide a worked solution to that problem it exists in isolation to everything they they currently understand so i think like the best problems you can give students are, are those that help them just to move their understanding on incrementally and so that's going to depend on what your students know
0: got it yeah no that that makes perfect sense and i I can't promise that i'm not going to return to problem solving throughout this interview (laughs) at numerous points (laughs) i can't stop thinking about it at the moment um i wonder if we can next move on then to to something i know that um you're very passionate about and whenever i first started doing these podcasts and started getting interested in in educational research your post um on um the seven habits of highly effective lesson plans was was very influential it's it's a wonderful post and there'll be a link to it um, in the show notes for people who haven't read it but i I thought it'd be nice if you could take us through these um these seven habits because i I think they're fascinating and some of them they sound simple but i I wonder what that what the complexities are, and what the problems and difficulties are, are behind them. So perhaps we can we can go through them one at a time, and and some will be able to do rapidly. Some will some we may dig into a little bit more if that's all right. And um, but before we start, I wonder if you could you just take us through the um, the kind of genesis of of that post. What, what, why did you write it, and where where did you get these ideas of these seven, seven habits from, perhaps?
1: Sure, um, and even before like even before we go there. I think what would be really interesting for us all to hold in mind is that, like lesson planning, in many ways is problem solving, and so the discussion that we've just had about around what problem solving is and how do you get better at it, I think is actually really relevant to lesson planning and what lesson planning is and how we get better at it. Um, and so it's worth just holding that, holding that in mind for this next section. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I like when I worked as the the PGC lead, at Brighton. Um, uh, after several years, I, <laughs> I, got, I got pretty frustrated at yeah how teachers were planning, and in particular, like how inefficient their approach was. Um, and it was really, yeah, it was just really sad because I had loads of teachers on the program who were like massively dedicated, to putting in loads of work, burning the midnight oil, but just not getting. Like the um, not getting the results they wanted from all of that investment in lesson planning, um, and so I got to a point where I, like I was just giving advice daily, and so I thought actually I need to just write a book about this, and so that's where Lean Lesson Planning came from. Um, and that post you mentioned, the Seven high- Habits of Highly Effective Lesson Plans, is really just a synopsis of of the book Lean Lesson Planning.
0: Oh, well, f- fantastic and it's uh, as I say it's <laughs> there's something about and I, I don't know whether it, you call it clickbait or whatever but when, when you see lists of the seven this or the ten this it's, it's just brilliant because it, you think right okay here here's a structure here's something summarized here's something that I can dip into and um, here's something co- compartmentalized that I can understand and and, and help me uh, plan and, and structure my thoughts so let, let's go through these seven in, in turn if that's right pep. so let's start with the first so your first habit of highly effective lesson plan is to start with the end in mind what what, what do you mean by that
1: so um like i say this is the most important thing you can do uh, as a teacher in terms of making sure your planning is robust or making it better um and and i think like anybody who has been um practicing for a long time uh, intentionally is 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 going to have like noticed this that the more you teach the more you think about it And the more you plan, the more you realise that the single biggest thing you can do to make your lesson a success is having a really clear idea in your head of the change you want to create by the end of the lesson. As in, what do I want my my pupils to have learnt by the end of the lesson? And the clearer you have that that in your head, the better your lesson's going to be. Everything's just going to align around that vision. Um, You're going to be able to improvise better. You're going to be able to, like... um, Tackle like problems as they arise throughout the lesson. You're going to be able to design activities better. Everything just like comes together a lot more easily. And so, like it's worth, even though it doesn't always feel like the the best use of your time, it's worth investing more time than you think in like really, really specifying what you want to have achieved by the end of that lesson. Um, and that kind of like it seems sounds obvious, doesn't it? But it's just it's not the way <laughs> it's not the way that we do.
0: Well, it's interesting this because um, just just to play devil's advocate a little bit with this one, is yeah. there a is there a danger? Because I've, I've been here myself so many times that I think to myself, right, this is what I want the kids to achieve by the end of the lesson, um, and perhaps that that involves them completing a tricky exam question, or I want them to get onto a particular problem solving activity, or, or whatever it whatever it may be. And almost regardless of what happens in the build-up, um, th- sorry, throughout the the kind of first forty minutes of that lesson, regardless of what information I get from my kids via formative assessment or asking questions or whatever because i know where i want my kids to get i'm just get to i'm just going to get them there anyway if that makes sense so i'm just going to plow on regardless because i need to get them to this question or i need to get them to this particular activity and i think that's particularly the case whenever people are being observed and they write down what their objective is for the lesson or whatever or on their lesson plan it says by the end my kids will be able to answer this question so is there a danger that when you do start with the end in mind it almost makes you a little bit less flexible a little bit less responsive to what's happening in the lesson because you're so focused on this end goal if that makes sense
1: yeah possibly possibly i think um like there's a couple of things firstly i'd say that the what what we actually specify for the end of the lesson Makes a difference. So if we, if you're, you know, one of the things you mentioned was oh, you want your students to be able to do this activity or be ready to do this other, this other activity. And actually, I think like it's much more useful to specify what you want students to have learned or what you want them to know differently by the end of the lesson, because uh, like them being able to do a question is only really a proxy for what they have learned or what yes. they know. And so I think if you specify the activity you want them to do, then yeah, I can see that there's quite a there's like a danger that you just want them to do that activity and be able to do it. Whereas if you specify what you want them to know or to understand or to have learned, then like you know that whatever question you ask them at the end of the lesson is only going to be a proxy for that understanding and you like could ask them a different question or, or get them to do something different or ask them that question in the future. There are multiple ways that you can begin to like Figure out whether you they've they've made that progress
0: or not. Got, got it. And can I ask as well, perhaps just before we dig deeper into this lesson planning, um, a couple of the guests that I've had on, and again particularly Danny Quinn from Michaela and Chris Bolton, again, were very adamant that the, the lesson is the incorrect unit of time to think about when we talk about planning. and um, wh- Where do you sit on on that debate? Are you talking here about planning individual lessons, or is this is this sequences of lessons?
1: Yeah. So I, I I'd agree. Um, that the you know the unit is the wrong the lesson is the wrong unit of time however pragmatically speaking that's the the unit that we have to kind of plan for and yes. so i think you you need to hold both in mind at once so you have to be able to hold the sequence or the trajectory of learning across multiple lessons while while it's also thinking carefully about like what do i need to achieve in this single lesson um so, yeah, I think like we've got to be careful about not dismissing that, the, the design of a single lesson, but also recognising that it's, it's nowhere near enough on its own.
0: Got it. F- fantastic. And I wonder, just before we move on to the, the second one, um, when you talk about start with the end in mind and you talk about it, it's it's more about what students have learnt than them actually being able to do a specific question. Could you give us a, an actual example of that, perhaps? What, what would be something that you would have in mind for a, a particular end for, for a given lesson?
1: Uh, Okay, so um, it might be that I want my students to understand the relationship between the diameter and the circumference of a circle.
0: And this would be, again, just so we're clear here, this this wouldn't be a lesson objective that will be written down and shared with the kids or anything like this. This is just something that you've got in your mind for where you want the kids to be by the end of that lesson.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and although I think there are times when it's helpful to share where you're going with your pupils, um, not all the time, but yeah, depends on what they, they know beforehand coming into the lesson, because if they don't know, if they don't understand that relationship just sort of telling them this is what you're going to know doesn't really help them
0: (laughs) got it no absolutely and you've got um you would possibly have a question or an activity or something in mind that you may use to assess whether they've learnt or or achieve that objective but you would also be flexible in the sense that if if something's gone wrong uh, throughout the lesson or if you've discovered a a misunderstanding or a misconception you may change that question or activity is that right
1: absolutely you know you've got to like the, the the value in specifying uh, an endpoint is that you can then take your take your mind off that endpoint because you've kind of internalized it, and you can focus all your attention on responding to your people's needs. And so, like if you don't get there, that's that's not an issue at all. If you go beyond, that's not an issue at all. But it means that you're going to be better prepared to respond to their needs. Um, and what we've got to do is. Yeah, that's got to be the priority is helping our students make progress based on where their starting point is, but also like how that, their experience unfolds during the lesson. And if we try too rigidly just to get to like a fixed point that we have previously identified in our minds, then we're not going to be serving them as best as we possibly
0: can. Got it. Yeah, you've so, you've sold me on this. Start with the end in mind. I'm, I'm happy with that, Pep. So and number two, I, I love this one. Um, take the shortest path. Can you just talk a little bit about that, please?
1: So, we're actually, um, we're going to skip to number three, Craig. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, hey, who's running this interview with gone <laughs> Go on then, no, tell me why.
1: Yeah, so, so number three is assess reliably and efficiently. Um, and I think it makes more sense to, after you've specified what you want to achieve by the end of a lesson, to next think about how you're going to assess that. Sure. Uh, and I think, like, the order of lesson planning does make a difference um, because if you start by thinking about the activities that you're going to use before you start up thinking about like how you're going to assess and whether your pupils have learned or not, then sometimes like those activities can tint or distort how you might go about assessing things, and you end up assessing their performance on the activity rather than like their performance uh, against the thing that you wanted them to learn. Um, so, so I'd say like once you've specified what you want them to learn, like the next most useful thing you can do is being really clear about how you might assess that um, and assess it like in an efficient and reliable way. And like, you know, the easiest math is we're so lucky to have a discipline where um, like assessing is fairly straightforward or relatively straightforward. Um, we can just construct a question that immediately gives us an insight into whether people know something or not. Um, and if we can construct a range of questions, then we can get uh, like an even more rigorous understanding of whether they, they, they get it or not. Um, like the, the reliable and efficient aspects, I suppose, um, like the time we have available in the classroom is, is limited. And so what we've got to do is just to make sure that we are assessing as many pupils as possible, as quickly as possible. And I think that's where things like Hinge questions can be hugely powerful in many whiteboards, uh, like a hinge question in 30 seconds can give me the insight into 30 people's heads. Uh, whereas like just trying to sample a few people's by individual questioning is far less reliable. And yeah, just gives me far less to, to work from. We've got so many biases built into our like systems that... We've got to force ourselves to just be rigorous about collecting as much data as possible before we make a decision about how to move on in the classroom
0: got it fantastic and just uh, again this is a question I, I almost feel obliged to ask every time we're talking about uh, questions and obviously I'm obsessed with hinge questions and, and diagnostic questions <laughs> myself what well, where do you stand Peps on this uh, on this issue of, of learning versus performance and and the fact that formative assessment strategies are potentially are flawed in the sense that you're only observing performance not not learning what's your take on that
1: um so I think there's like, I think what we've got to, or a helpful way to think about it is to think about learning as a slightly broader concept than just something you either get or you don't. Like often in our profession, we talk about, you know, you, you've learned it or you haven't learned it. It's, something it's like a binary distinction. And actually learning something is, um, journey is not the right word, but it's, it's something that takes time and there's a like there's a qualitative dimension to it which um, so like you can you can kind of when you learn something to begin with you just kind of you kind of got get a glimpse of it and perhaps you get a glimpse of it through things you already know and perhaps it's like full of misconceptions and so that's kind of like the early stages of learning and so you could say that somebody's learned something at that point um, and then we you know over time and through practice you gradually get a more refined understanding of that thing and perhaps it might become more generalized and more transferable and you might understand it across a greater range of contexts. And again that's that's learning, that's learning that same thing, but you've got a different you've learnt it in a slightly different way. And then like over a greater range of time, um through retrieval practice and things like that, I think like you can learn something and know it and be able to access it and use it in an automated way. And again, that is a type of learning. And I think our, our the current language around learning um, that we have in schools is just a little bit limited because it paints this picture that you just learning is just about either like, getting a concept or not. And actually, learning is so much more than that. Learning is about grasping a concept, developing a deep understanding about it, and then remembering it for as long as you need to remember it. And I think like that... If you define learning in a slightly broader way like that, then the whole learning versus performance doesn't necessarily, isn't as big a problem because you're, yeah, the way you think about learning is, is just slightly more complex.
0: Got it. So when we assess and we we, we get some information back from students in the time, um, we're not necessarily hoping to observe the entire completion of the learning process because that, that's impossible we're just getting a snapshot of where it is at that time and that can inform us um, about how we should proceed for the rest of the lesson is that about right
1: absolutely yeah and you could argue that you know learning is never finished really nobody <laughs> it's like it, there's always a possibility that you can elaborate on it further and have like a more nuanced or more abstracted understanding of that concept but there's also the possibility that you're going to forget about it. And if that's the case, then, again, <laughs> there's always scope for learning it um, in ways that you can remember it
0: for longer. Got it. Fantastic. We're going to dig into me- memorable teaching a-, a little later on, Peps. Well, um, am I all right to do number two now? or are yeah. we doing? Yeah. Is that fine? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right. Let's do number two then. Take the shortest path. Tell us a bit about this.
1: Yeah. So this is um, a phrase that Doug Lamov used as well. Uh, I think it's from, like, TLAC, Teach Like a Champion, um and he you know again it's about efficiency yeah there's like a theme running through this you know engineers really value efficiency and I think like you can see that in some of my writing um I think I really value efficiency and I think it's just because um or you know we don't have a huge amount of time with our pupils and like it's just so important that we spend that time wisely and I think like what you want to do is when you've got a clearly you've got a clear idea of the end point of your lesson what you want to do is choose the shortest most direct path to helping your pupils get to that point Um, i've seen so many lessons where teachers have tried to create like overly complex like activities that take like students and pupils sorry pupils on like a (laughs) a journey across all sorts of things that means that that like they don't always end up at that end point and that's a real shame um often like the most direct route is just the simplest bit like the triangle that we talked about at the start and so sometimes just giving students um like a, a model of what you uh want them to understand and giving them the opportunity to practice through some questions can can be the most effective and uh, enjoyable route to the end point
0: Got it. And I wonder if it, just just to dig a little bit deeper into this, Pep. So, the example you gave there of of giving a, a worked example or modelling a worked example, and then students completing some practice questions based on that, would be a, a relatively um, efficient way of, of or a way of taking the shortest path. What What are some of the things that you've seen that that, that aren't as efficient as that? Um, I think
1: like, um. And you know we might talk a little bit more about this later, but um, you know we we kind of we've got a good grasp of this idea of what students think about is what they learn, and so you know I have seen lessons where pupils are asked to construct PowerPoint slides or PowerPoint posters to um, showcase their understanding of a particular topic, and what happens in that situation is that they end up spending. You know, 80% of their time thinking about PowerPoint, and so that's what they're going to end up learning. Similarly, if you're running like a loop cards exercise, um, students are going to spend the majority of their time thinking about like, oh, am I next? Um, how am I going to say this right? What happens if it goes wrong? Um, rather than actually thinking about the math that you want them to learn. So I think it's like when you're trying to decide how short your path is, a really good question to ask yourself is, how much time are my pupils going to be spending thinking about the thing I want them to learn?
0: Got it. Got it. And I'm going to again play devil's advocate here perhaps because this is a position I find myself trying to defend a lot. So it'd be nice to get someone else on my team here. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm volunteering you for this. Um, what, what do you say to people who will say well that's boring that just kind of doing you doing an example modeling it the kids practicing that's boring whereas let's get out the loop cards let's do a tarsia or something like that cuz that's different that's motivating that's exciting where do you stand on that debate
1: so in in, in my experience um i'd say that like you know doing a tarsia puzzle can be like it can be a valuable activity first of all um but doing an activity that isn't perhaps the shortest path that's overly complicated Maybe superficially motivating because it's novel, but actually the thing that really like, will awaken students' love for the subject and their enthusiasm and their motivation is just feeling the success that comes with understanding a subject. And so like, by using the shortest path, you can help them be able to develop an understanding of that. And the quicker they develop an understanding, the better they will feel about themselves and that subject. And that creates a virtuous cycle where they're just going to want to learn and know more and they will enjoy their lessons even more. Got
0: it. F- fantastic. Um, are we? Is it number four next or are we going number seven or something? What, what you <laughs> <answer now? laughs> I've got number four, build learning that lasts. Is, is that a good one?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's Although that, that might be, yeah, that might be, it might be worth shelving that. Um, until we talk about memorable teaching because that's really like there's a book in that answer
0: got it got it well all right let's pull that to one side building in the last and i've got next number five and i love this as well anticipate the unexpected
1: yeah so this is this is one like uh, yeah this is one a principle i have i've kind of gone back to and challenged a little bit over time um like uh, i'm not sure whether anticipating the unexpected is really possible um, like you don't know what you don't know, and you can't tell what is necessarily going to unfold if you can't expect it. Um, and I think what, what this principle for over time, what this principle principle has given me insight into is the like the purpose of lesson planning and the differences between how uh, novices plan and experts plan. Um, and so, what, what am I saying here? That it's As a novice, as like a new teacher, it's really hard to anticipate what's going to happen in your lesson because you don't have that wealth of experience to draw upon. Um, And so it's actually really hard to anticipate misconceptions if you haven't experienced them and felt them and come across them yourself in your practice. Um, It's also, I think like, and this might be a bit of a tangent here, but what this does is it also begins to shine light on, like the purpose of lesson planning, and I think there's there's like a twin purpose to lesson planning. So, firstly, it's to um, like help you construct the, the the learning that you're going to um, or the lesson that you're going to teach, but secondly, like lesson planning is often used to help build subject knowledge, and anticipating. The unexpected can sometimes be a useful process in building the subject knowledge as well as trying to like design the learning that's going to happen. Even just thinking about like what are the concepts that I'm trying to teach here? What? How could the pupils misinterpret them? What? Like what might their prior misconceptions be that would mean that they interpret these in ways that are unhelpful? Things like that. Um, are useful to think about but I'm like you can only think about them so much in advance I things to answer
0: yeah and I, this is this is something I've, I've spoke about a lot that I struggled with the first couple of years of my teaching that I didn't have a flipping clue what kind of mistakes the kids were going to make and I, I thought someone had set me up for about the first six months of my career were essentially paying kids to make ridiculous mistakes just because I had no experience and no way of of, of knowing the misconceptions, um, students would have. And my lessons were just a constant surprise. My jaw was on the floor for, as I say, for probably about the first three years. So how do we help and that's something that gets better with with experience as you've said and you you talked about the distinction between um, experts and, and novice teachers but how how do we help teachers who don't have that experience how do we help trainee teachers or teachers in their nqt or, or rqts in their first couple of years of their career where they don't have that wealth of experience um, of, of misconceptions and mistakes and, and reasons things go wrong in lessons how do we help them anticipate the unexpected perhaps?
1: So I think there's a there's a couple of ways we can do this. Firstly, we can encourage new teachers to like do the maths themselves, experience it themselves. Um, that that will help to a certain extent, but it's it's a limited strategy because like as maths teachers we often know enough to and we know things in secure enough ways that mean that we don't really develop like the typical misconceptions that pupils might develop in the lesson. So actually, a better way to to do that is to co-plan with a more experienced other. And this kind of like jumps forward to like the principle seven, plan better together. And I think like there's real value in this. Um, I've worked with ARC teacher training over the last uh, year or so, and they've got a really strong model for this. Um, Once a week or once a fortnight, new teachers plan or co-plan a lesson with an experienced uh, math teacher and together they sit down, sit down and work through a process that's very similar to this, um, specifying the end in mind, thinking about assessment, and then how the um, what activities might might come together to help meet those ends. And when you sit down with a more experienced teacher, they can really help you understand what might go wrong and what you have to think about before you actually experience it. And so it sort of shortcuts that um, learning through experience, as it were. So I think co-planning, even though you're not going to be able to do every lesson, is a really valuable activity to do you know, once a fortnight.
0: Well, well that's interesting that, Peps. And I'm, I'm going to do a bit of jumping around myself here. Because as you say, you, you've teed us up perfectly for that plan better together. And one thing I wanted to ask you about this is that whenever I've um, either been involved in joint planning or kind of overseen joint planning, one difficulty um, I often observe or, or experience myself is that different kind of philosophies of approaches to teaching often tend to get in the way. And, and by that, I mean, um, well, perhaps philosophies isn't the word, but almost kind of practicalities, because some teachers will like doing group work, some won't, some will like using ICT, some won't. How do you kind of, and even something as stupid as, I want to use that font on my PowerPoint slide, or I want to use this font. How, how do you get around those issues and get to the heart of, of what makes planning together so beneficial
1: i think like it works best because i've (laughs) I've experienced those things um uh, like as you have um and it can be helpful. and i said i think co-planning works best whenever you pair a novice with a more expert teacher um and particularly if the expert is positioned as someone who's there to help the novice achieve their goals and so the expert is not trying to like co-plan a lesson that necessarily they would teach but what they're trying to do is to help the the novice teacher plan a better lesson that they will be able to teach Um, and that the process of doing that is a really valuable one for the more expert teacher because they are having to think really carefully about how to support somebody else and to articulate some of the more tacit assumptions they have around teaching and learning um, and the, the, the more novice teacher gets an insight and support from the more expert teacher
0: got it and this is a bit of a tangent peps and it could possibly be one of the worst questions i've ever asked but it's, <laughs> it's it's just just entered my head and it's it's something that i've dabbled with a few times more early on in my career than now but i see it a lot and that's when teachers encourage students to to plan lessons and you often get this roundabout revision time and um, build up to gcses how how would you plan a lesson to help somebody understand how to factorize quadratics or add fractions or whatever and um, is, is that a good strategy? Is, is the benefits in students being involved in a lesson planning process or is that a bit of a gimmick that kind of fits more into what you were talking about before of have, have taking the shortest path, that, that there are elements of that lesson planning that will distract from the, the core things students should be thinking about?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. Um, I'd say that like asking pupils to plan a whole lesson perhaps will get them thinking about things that aren't necessarily that useful unless of course your objective is to help them become a better lesson planner um however there are certain parts of a lesson that can be really helpful to get students to think about planning for example the explanation or exposition part and so uh, if you can um at a certain point in the learning journey get a student to think about how they might explain a topic to someone else then that, that can help consolidate their and refine their understanding of that topic because the act of like explaining it or explicating it forces them to refine um, the connections that exist around that topic for them but also to like nail down and articulate some of the language they would use to describe it which in turn refines their understanding of that that concept
0: got it got it and i, I guess it, it, it does fit in exactly with what you're saying before particularly about that making posters because or because I, i've had kids create powerpoint slides for, for revision or, or to explain things to the rest of the class and again that's when they get bogged down in the flipping fonts, things bouncing in left right and center the images and so on but if if the focus can be specifically on what words are you going to use to convey this what examples are you going to use and moving the focus away from the the kind of practicalities of, of what it's going to look like what jokes you're going to tell blah 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 blah. then you get all the benefits of that with without the necessary distractions but it's, it's difficult to do isn't it it's difficult to, to strike that balance
1: yeah i think you just got to think about what your what your goal is like what's your purpose what are you trying to achieve and if what you're trying to achieve is to like help students refine their understanding then setting them like an explanation task or an exposition task could, could, could fit well with that
0: got it F- fantastic and i think we've just got um the, the one more on the list that we're going to cover now and that, that's number six peps so that's moved towards inter lesson planning well what, what do you mean by that
1: yeah and i think we've already we've already kind of answered that question earlier on you talked about like what how do i view the this idea that like, lessons are the wrong unit of, of time and i think yeah inter lesson plan inter lesson planning Um, for me emphasizes the relationship between lessons Um, and I think that's the the bit that uh, that's the thing that allows you to hold both the sequence and the individual lesson plan in your head at once is thinking carefully about how do these like two lessons or how do these three lessons relate to each other
0: and it's it's a tricky one this isn't it because i i am um, fairly early or well the start of my career i was very much on a kind of day-to-day basis i'd survive monday get home monday down a coffee and then it was right let's let's think what the flipping it does tuesday look like let's get my lessons planned and i think that's how a lot of nqts survive almost kind of on a, a day-to-day basis and then later on when i got a bit more time efficient it was i used to like to plan out all the week's lessons i'm um, on a sunday so i would get everything done and i found that much more efficient to plan three lessons on fractions together than to plan them separate over over three three different nights if that makes sense but i think the downside of that that if there is a downside of planning a sequence of lessons is that if you don't constantly revisit it after you've delivered each lesson then you're stuck in that kind of inflexible thing where you're kind of chain to what you planned the week before and you're not adapting to what's happened in each lesson so whilst i definitely see a major advantage of planning a sequence of lessons i think it has to come with a kind of disclaimer that that's only beneficial if you then revisit each individual lesson after you've taught the previous one in the sequence so would you agree with that
1: yeah absolutely i think it's like a case of how at what level of detail do you plan that sequence um, and I think like in my experience it's useful to know where you're headed and have a rough idea of like what students are going to be learning in forthcoming lessons but like kneeling down exactly what you're going to be doing during that lesson can be a bit premature.
0: Got it. And I'm going to ask you, Peps, just before just before I ask you one final question on this, just a bit of a controversial one, but that I like to chuck in as well. And this, both Danny Quinn and Greg Ashman spoke about that in their departments, they're very much in favor of centrally planned lessons, whether it be the head of department and working with perhaps another a TLR holder, essentially plans the lessons out for the rest of the department that the rest of the department then deliver. Um, where do you stand on that? Should lessons be centrally planned within a department, or should it be the responsibility of, of individual teachers?
1: Uh, so I think there's a couple of things there. Um, firstly, you, 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 you know you, you mentioned that when you were a new member of or a new teacher, like there were, <laughs> it was like living hand to mouth day yes. by day, and so like <laughs> having a having a bunch of resources that have been carefully thought through by uh, like a bunch of expert teachers can be just a really really helpful really helpful thing and that can help you then like make progress towards that point where you can begin to plan sequences of lessons on your own so i think like it can be really like centralized planning can be really useful especially for new teachers but i think for more experienced teachers i'd take us back to the bridge building analogy and if you think about teachers as engineers then if there is a centrally planned set of lessons then you still have to be creative in how you modify those lessons to suit the particular needs of your class of your learners and so that what happens is like the lesson the focus of your lesson planning and the focus of like your thinking and energy goes into adapting those resources that you've been given and refining them so that you can like, even better meet the needs of the particular group of learners you're working with
0: And I'm I'm interested there, Peps, because obviously you've experience of of training lots of teachers um, via your your previous role. Did you find that, especially with the growth of Tez and and wonderful websites like Joe Morgan's that essentially collate together the very best resources out there, that planning's almost becoming a bit of a a dying art and and people are just trying to find a good lesson activity. So they'll Google adding fractions, find some mystery or find some collection of questions or a Tarsy or whatever it is and think all right well that's my plan in i'm just going to use this activity in my lesson do you did you find that that was a, an issue uh, with you with your students and if so like, how do you get around that
1: absolutely and i think that's potentially like the, you know these all these resources that you mentioned are fantastic they really are but if they distract you from thinking carefully about what you want your students to have learned by the end, and developing like a shortest path route to taking them there, then they they're not helping. Um, and so like essentially that's why I wrote the book is because I had teachers who would like be up all night just searching, googling for <laughs> amazing activities, finding them, and like getting them all ready for the next day, and then like realizing ah this activity doesn't actually fit the needs of my learners. Um like it just didn't work out it doesn't teach them exactly what i want them to learn um so i think like activities are great but you just got to be disciplined in the art of lesson planning uh, and that means you got to start with the end in mind you got to construct your assessment before you start to think about the activity you're going to use to help people get from a to b
0: got it. it is it's difficult though isn't it because there's so much kind of good stuff out there and it's almost especially in the first couple of years of your career you, you You'd, i certainly didn't have that experience to be able to look at a resource judge whether it was good or not or crucially judge whether it was suitable or not uh, suitable or not for the needs of my learners and adapt it accordingly and it's almost it's it's only really through experience and, and lots of mistakes and lots of failures on my part that I've, I've been able to to judge that so would you i mean would you go so far perhaps would would you ban teachers from using resources they find online for the first couple of years of their career and kind of insist that they either create stuff on their own or with a more experienced colleague or is or is that going too far um no because i think like
1: uh like online resource, like I, we do want activities uh, in our lessons but what we've got to do is to make sure that those activities align with the the goals of our lessons and so, like, banning teachers from accessing activities is not the right thing to do. What we want to do is to build good habits, good planning habits for our teachers right from the outset. And so, like, working with them, co planning is a really good mechanism to help do that. But also, just being really clear about the, the best ways that they can use your time um, is just really helpful. And I think, like, it's really interesting like what you're saying about how you became a better lesson planner over time and thinking back to our our earlier conversation about becoming a better problem solver and that actually it's a blend between having experience of solving a variety of different problems a huge number of different problems alongside an understanding of good process i think we're seeing like another example of that in action here like the more lesson solutions you might see it like that. The more lesson solutions that you devised um, over time, the better lesson planner you became. But that's not enough in itself. You also have to have like a, a rigorous process that you know will deliver good outcomes every time
0: got it got it and and the final question now obviously we, we've left out the one related to memory that we'll, we'll come back to in a second but my last question peps is obviously that this post in your book were, was written a couple of years ago now so i wonder if you were to rewrite the post or the book now would anything change about your list would would you add anything would you take anything off from those principles
1: um yeah like i said i've, I've got some big questions about whether it's possible to anticipate the unexpected <laughs> and um um, but yeah as I suggested like perhaps the best route to do that is working with a more experienced other and um, I think we'll, I've learned a lot about variation theory over the last couple of years um, that I think yeah I, I would have liked to have talked more about in that book but yeah luckily I had a chance to <laughs> talk about that in memorable teaching um, and then I think this this like final thing around the two purposes that lesson planning serves both to help you construct a series of Experiences for your learners, to help them get to an end goal, but also to develop your subject knowledge as a teacher. I think like the more we can think about that and understand those two different purposes, the better we might be able to like actually serve those purposes. And it might be that lesson planning isn't necessarily the most effective way to help teachers build subject knowledge. Um, and so uh, Emma McRae has been doing some really interesting work around that. Um, around building subject knowledge for mathematics teaching Um, uh, yeah so maybe in the show notes we can we can put a link to some of her work on that definitely
0: Right, Pep. So the one omission from our list of seven uh, was build learning that lasts. And that feeds nicely into into memorable teaching. Now, I, I've got on my bookshelf behind me here uh, your wonderful book on this. And it's, uh, it's memory is something that absolutely obsessed me. Um, I've been lucky enough to speak to Robert and Elizabeth Bjork about it. So I'm fascinated to to get your take on this. So... I don't know the best way to start, well, let, let's take this build learning that lasts. What, what, why did you include that in your in your list of seven and, and what, what are the key points uh, behind that, Peps?
1: OK, so um, like again, I think I was scratching an itch that uh, I had experienced as a teacher educator. I spend a lot of time and I have spent a lot of time. It's been a real privilege actually spend a lot of time in teachers classrooms, mass classrooms watching teachers teach doing their stuff watching people learn um but one of like the one of the frustrations that like teachers clearly felt or one of the biggest frustrations that mass teachers feel through my experience is this whole thing of like oh i i, I, I taught them last week <laughs> and this week they just don't like they look at me with blank stares yes, like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. um And, you know, for for years I was really just, like, perplexed. I was thinking, like, what's going on here? What's at the heart of this? Is it just, like, is it bad teaching? Or is it, like, that we've actually kind of got teaching wrong or we don't understand what's going on? And so, you know, I think that, like, several years ago, I just got really interested in that question. And, um, you know, I've been in a really fortunate position to have the time to read and research around these areas, but also to work with teachers to try and apply some of the um the evidence around memory and learning um and so yeah i just thought like yeah i learned enough um to pull things together into a bit of a useful format and so uh, one of my short books is always good to do that
0: fantastic and well, we'll let, let's dive into this then peps well, what, what would you say the key principles are of memorable teaching how because how, you're right like it is the absolute bane of teachers' lives when when kids simply don't retain it or or on the surface it appears that they don't retain it as if it's as if you yesterday or last week's lesson literally never happened so how do we counteract that if that's not too too big a question to start with
1: yeah well it's a nice big question i think um and i think like i want to step back a little bit in order to answer it. and firstly like i'm <laughs> even caveat the whole discussion with <laughs> Remind people out there, I'm not a cognitive scientist or a psychologist, um, and yeah, it's like um, I'm the engineer, I suppose, or one of the engineers. We're all teachers. We're all engineers. We we attempt to take the principles that underpin our, our craft and apply them uniquely to the situations we face. And so I think like cognitive science um, and behavioural science are like really good starting points for. Building a set of principles that we can begin to like construct a set of rigorous teaching and learning principles around, Um, and that's where I'm coming from. Um, And I suppose like one of the one of the interesting things about memory is like when you think about like what is memory, and like how (laughs) and how does it differ from what we know and who we are? And I think like when you start to ask those questions, you realise that there are lots and lots of overlaps between like, memory and knowledge and identity and understanding and belief and mindset and all these kinds of things. And then actually spending a bit of time understanding how memory works shines a lot of light on how learning works. Um, and like to take that even further then, our understanding of how learning works has a massive influence on how we teach in all sorts of like hidden implicit ways and so if we can do anything to help teachers develop a more robust understanding of how learning works then we're going to be helping them to be a better teacher Um, so like when I think like a useful framework and we've already kind of touched on this um, a useful framework to thinking about how like how memory works is is that there are sort of two dimensions to it. Um, uh, Earlier on, we talked about learning being not just a binary thing, like you've learned or you haven't, but being sort of a a broader experience or a gradual unfolding journey. Um, And and part of that journey is building a a kind of a depth of understanding. Uh, And so in the brain, I suppose, very crudely speaking, that might... We might think about that as as like the number of connections (laughs) that we build around a concept or a topic. Um, So like the more connections we make around an idea, the better we get it, the more we understand it. But connections alone are insufficient uh, when it comes to learning. We've also got to have connections that last um, and that are really easily accessible and that we can use really quickly. And so we need connections that are consolidated. And so as a teacher, that kind of leaves us with two main tasks to do. We've got to help our students build connections, but we've also got to think really carefully about how we help them consolidate those connections.
0: Flipping it. I mean (laughs) and it's it's interesting this perhaps because and again I've I've spoken about this before. I cannot believe how long I went through my career with without considering memory, and I feel ashamed to, to say to say it, right? And, and I'm there you, too. <laughs> but it's, it's bad, isn't it? Because if we don't know how kids, we, we spend all our time kind of complaining that kids don't remember things. Well, I certainly did anyway, and yet I never really stopped and take, took a step back to, to consider, well, h- how does memory work? And, and crucially, what, what can I as a teacher be doing to, to help kids remember things better? And it's only because I've been fortunate to have a little bit more time myself over these last couple of months to do some reading that it's opened my eyes into a whole world of research and crucially, a whole world of practical, simple things that, that teachers can do to, to help kids remember. But I thought what would be interesting and again, if it's alright with you as is, is a bit of a structure to dig into this. I wonder if you could talk first about things that don't help kids remember stuff kind of unmemorable practices, um, because I, I, and I, this will no doubt be a list of, of how I used to teach for about 10 years. <laughs> but I just I just think that might be a quite a useful way into this before we start talking about practical things that the teachers can do. So. Well, given your knowledge of how working memory and long-term memory works and we can dig into that a little bit more if you like what are some things that you've seen teachers do or you yourself have done that perhaps aren't the most useful for getting kids to to retain things
1: so like i'm not <laughs> I, 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 this isn't a very helpful response but <laughs> i I'm, I'm not sure that's the best way to to, to to really to really help people develop a better understanding of memory because essentially all I would be talking about are like strategies that don't take into account how learning works if that makes sense yes so so I wonder whether it would be more helpful to actually think about how memories are formed and like what we can do and then anything that you don't do to catalyze that process really
0: is unhelpful let's do it that makes sense let's do that that's good (laughs) (laughs) let's go for
1: it it's like throwing your question out the window
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's fine let's let's go for that that makes a lot of sense perhaps Uh,
1: uh, however i'm aware that you know you've you you know you've had some um titans on this podcast already you know the bjorks and chris and daisy and um and so like uh, i think some of this your listeners will already be familiar with but i think like there is value in digging deeper down deeper into some of the aspects of it um and so like if we just start with the whole like the whole idea that kirsten was suggesting that um like learning is a change in long-term memory um and that uh, like the if we equate memory to to knowledge then like what our job is as teachers is to help pupils to know stuff um, and that knowledge like it's it's, it's kind of useful to have kind of a broad conceptualization of what knowledge means and uh, it's like a big bucket that we might include things like beliefs and mindsets and skills and understanding all in it's, it's just different types of knowledge i think like a good question to ask ourselves is like what what is there apart from long-term memory um you know it, it kind of forms everything for us it, it is what we know, it guides what we do, but it also is kind of who we are as well. Um, and then it's like, so the next question you have to ask yourself as a teacher is, well, how do I change that? And the only vehicle we have to really change our uh, people's long-term memory is their working memory. And the working memory is, is, well, we don't really understand exactly what it is. All of these things are just models of the mind, like, whoa. <laughs> Science is really, really far off understanding how the brain works. Um, but as a model, working memory is a way of, or is, is kind of like a vehicle that our brain uses to author our long-term memory, or to to um, create new connections and to consolidate some connections. Um, we, you know, working big thing about working memory is it can only do so much at once. Um, there are various schools of thought as to why. Like one of the, the reasons might be that like if we try to change loads of our memory at once then we just like, there'd be loads of catastrophic failures <laughs> that would happen really quickly and so it's actually a, like a really sensible evolutionary um, mechanism to only be able to like change a few things at once um, and that like we have to continually revisit things if we want to change them more permanently um, because yeah, you wouldn't want to like, your brain to be changed permanently every time you you thought about something just once, it's not it's not a very like helpful thing to have in terms of success and survival um so yeah and and like the working memory is roughly equivalent to what we like talk about when we talk about thinking so this is why you know willingham's idea of of like what you think about is is what you what you remember what you learn um works so well because like thinking essentially is is the working memory long-term memory is essentially knowledge and so our job as as teachers is to manage thinking, manage our pupils' thinking to help them develop their long-term memory. And I think like that as a model to hold in our heads um, is a really strong starting point in terms of um, like just helping our pupils to, 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 learn what they need to learn during any, any lesson. Um, and then you can start to like, once you have that sort of simple model in mind, you can start to dig into some of the, like, the nuances around it and the implications and, um, you know john sweller's work around cognitive load theory is really really important for teachers um you know our our working memory can only focus on so much at once and there are huge implications for us immediately and thinking back to like the some of the shortest path stuff we talked about earlier in the lesson planning section like this is why that makes sense um you know if you give a student, a PowerPoint construction activity, they're going to be thinking about the PowerPoint and therefore those are the connections they're going to be making, not the connections around the mathematics um, because they can only think about so much at once. And actually, like, like, there are serious implications for us as teachers in the classroom environment that the classroom environment is like a massively information-rich environment. There's so much... Like if you imagine yourself in a classroom and think about all the information that's available. Um, you know, not just like the text on the walls and on the board, but also like the words that come out of people's mouths and also all of like the social information that exists through gesture and through <laughs> Yeah, there's just like, wow, there's so much information in that classroom. All of it is competing for the attention of our pupils and yet they can only think about a massively small fraction of it at any one time and so as a teacher like one of our immediate tasks is to think about like how on earth do I help my pupils to like focus on the right information the most useful information within this cacophony of information that like abounds um, in the environment every day every lesson that they're here um,
0: and just just on that peps because this yeah. this again this is, this is something i'm i'm absolutely fascinated about and i'm a relative newcomer to, to cognitive load theory and it's it's completely it, it's changed my life really i know it sounds a bit pathetic but it it really really has
1: cognitive load theory changed my life <laughs> it really
0: honestly <laughs> um, and so a couple of talks i have been given recently i've i've been been talking about this abundance of information and i've said kind of two practical things that i've done straight away in my classroom that have just made a huge difference well three really and um, firstly is displays that they've gone so any display work that's at the front of the classroom even the side of the classroom has completely gone and it's teachers have been kicking off left right and center about this because <laughs> displays are great to showcase students work and, and all this kind of thing but again if we, if we talk about the redundancy effect from, from cognitive load theory it, it can't be helpful right information that is not directly relevant to um to, to what the, the core concept of the lesson is or what the teacher's trying to convey as you say has to compete for for this the finite capacity of working memory so are you joining me in this campaign to, to get displays uh, gone from classrooms or, or do, do they have a place perhaps um I, I,
1: yeah i think like the way they're used often at the minute is not helpful uh, I, I agree with you in that you know um and i think like the, the problem is that even when displays are put up for good reasons, uh, you know, to encourage, like, to help students, to showcase students' work and to motivate them, which you know, it can be a valid reason. Um, like, student pupils don't even look at them. <laughs> you know, yes. They are they are filtered out from their experience. However, that filtering out comes with a cost. Like, it takes mental resources and effort to filter out information from our environment and to focus on the things that, like, are most important to us. Um, and so there's a cost associated with that. I think if you're going to use like displays to motivate, well, yeah, then like think carefully about like do they serve that purpose? And like if you want to motivate your students through showcasing their work, perhaps it might be better to like take a couple of photographs of the work, and at the time when you want to like, create that sense of motivation, show show them on your interactive whiteboard, and then they disappear after that.
0: Yes, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in favour of that. But as, as I say, it's a, not maybe the most popular, especially amongst the senior leadership teams, but but anyway, um, the other thing I've, I've been saying to people, and again, I'd be interested in your take on this, is, is, is standing still more as, as a teacher, because I, I'm a mover. I, I love moving around the classroom, and it's great for kind of behaviour management, and and also just to kind of get a, a more. Uh, I guess detailed overview of the class, uh, so so kids aren't left out. I can just wander to the back and so on. But I I got the feeling when I started reading about cognitive load theory that that even that's potentially distracting for kids, as, as kids are kind of as you say keeping an eye on my movements, asking themselves why is he coming over here, what's he doing next, and so on. And so it so now I've I've really started, especially when I've got something important to say. I, I stand still, put my hands behind my back, and 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 just say it and. Is is that something that that would also fit in with your view of memory that teachers should stay still a bit more, or is that a bit of a a more of a minor consideration? I think
1: I think it's the right idea. I think we just got to be really careful about not not oversimplifying these things. Um, like when you stand still, what you do is you remove some information from the environment, which can be helpful. But one of the other things you might do is. Um, like harness that attention less so if you're moving around then you're an object that is changing in the environment and we tend to as people we tend to focus on the things that our attention tends to be drawn to things that change in the environment and so moving around could in some situations potentially be a useful mechanism for keeping students attention on you if that makes sense
0: yeah, that's very interesting. No, I, I like that. And uh, my me, me final thing that uh, I say to people, and again, I'm just interested in your take on this with with regards to memory, is I'm a massive fan now of, of Silent Teacher, and it was something that was popular. I came across it maybe four or five years ago, and then every, everyone was doing it. Everyone was, and I'll talk a little bit about exactly what I mean in, in in a second. But everyone was doing it four or five years ago. Then, just like any kind of fad in education, after being done to death for six months, and that nobody was nobody. Was was doing it um, again, and whenever I started reading about cognitive load theory, I started thinking to myself, this, "This fits in perfectly." So, just the simple idea of if I'm demonstrating to students how to solve an equation, or expand a bracket, or add two fractions together, just demonstrating it first in absolute silence. So, there's no talking from me whatsoever. There's no discussion from the students. Their entire Uh, attention or as much of it as possible is focused on what's happening on the board reading the text and interpreting it pausing to self-explain and so on and then only once i've gone through the example in silence will i then annotate or narrate over the top ask questions and so on and again is that an oversimplification or is is a silent teacher got some merits there in regard to what you know about memory perhaps
1: yeah certainly i think like as a as a means for helping students to focus on a particular uh, like particular bits of information I think that could be really powerful um, like I'm kind of like uh, I'm drawn to the movie theater analogy it's like when you go to like uh, you know watch a film at the cinema and the lights go down like all of your attention is consumed by what's on the screen and you almost like forget that even life exists outside of yes, this yes. environment, and so like I can imagine the same happening in a classroom. Um, and you know, I, I like if I was teaching that way, I'd be dimming the lights and putting the blinds down, and really trying to help students to just like filter out everything else, like help them to filter out everything else, so it doesn't like incur as much of a cost for them, so that they can focus on that information. You know, I think the caveat is that that information you present needs to be useful to them, it needs to be meaningful to them and they need to see the value in it. But definitely as like a tool for steering attention, I think that could be the silent teacher sounds like a great, great technique.
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, things are looking up here perhaps. This has got this. Is good, this. Uh-huh. Um, so in in terms of, again, just, I want to ask you a little bit more about, about uh, long-term memory in, in a second, but I'm just, just just interested whilst we're talking about the limits of working memory. Is there anything else practical, given what you know about the limits of working memory, that, that you'd advise teachers to do to to respect those limits and, and ensure that working memory doesn't get overloaded?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that like are good to think about. Um, and you talked about you know managing the information in your your environment as a teacher. So we can do that. You know, we can think about the displays that are there. We can think about like the stuff we present on, on our boards. Um, you know, we can remove the clip art from <laughs> our slides, very, very simply. Um, um, but I think like, it's also really interesting for us to think about the types of information that we're, we're communicating as well. So if we want to communicate uh, some information about the relationship between the diameter of a circle and its circumference, we can do that uh, visually. We could show our pupils a diagram. We can do it using text. We can give them like, a paragraph that explains that relationship. Or we can do it uh, orally. We could just talk them through that relationship or any combination of those three things or more, you know, other ways to communicate as well. And it's one thing, like, I think there's a lot of work to be done, uh, not only in math, but in, in, in teaching more generally. Is to really think about the different, like the different affordances that each of those modalities, as we might call them, uh, offers. So, like, w- when is saying something better than showing something, and when is showing a diagram, like, and talking over it better than just explaining it without a diagram? And I think, like, all of these things make a difference because we process those different types of information in different ways, but. Like I think the nuances in our understanding around how we can leverage those different modalities is like yeah there's there's loads of work to be done in that.
0: And I wonder just just on that again. I know I'm saying this all the time. That this is something I'm, I'm fascinated with as well. That the presentation of information and and particularly the kind of dual channel assumption of, of working memory with the the phonological loop and visual spatial sketch pad or the auditory part and the, and the, the visual part of working memory. I wonder if you could give us. Um, an example perhaps of, of when maybe it's a, a, a good idea just based on your current understanding when it's a good idea to present something as an image with, with narration versus when perhaps it's an idea not to have that image or, or just have text or something like that. How, how, do, how do we as teachers make that call?
1: So I think you've got to think about what like w- what you want your students to know or what they already know and what's the kind of next iteration in their understanding. And so if, like, they're very new to a concept, very early, like, if they're early on in that learning journey, then probably what they want are some, like, concrete models that they can, like, build on. Um, And that's why, like, that's when sort of, like, concrete representations of mathematics can be really powerful because it allows students to latch on to a concept quite quickly and build on an understanding that they already have um, you know that's why bar modeling is really great that's why using manipulatives can be really powerful at an early stage of understanding and um, as long as they're kind of s- simple enough Um it's also like like why analogy is a massively powerful tool for teaching and I think like if you think back to the best teachers you've had and some of the best teaching moments you've done yourself like often analogy will creep up and you won't always understand why and what role it plays but um, you know that 's the reason it helps students to bridge what they understand um with any new idea they're they 're kind of faced with.
0: Can I just ask on that Peps because uh, again, just analogies are something i 've been thinking about a fair bit recently um do, do you have any kind of favorite analogies you 've used in maths or or even do you have some that you 're not a big fan of? and just to give you a bit of a background um the, the reason I ask this is I was just speaking to to chris Bolton um, and I think I think we we mentioned this in the podcast. Um, analogies for negative numbers are are kind of rife in mathematics and everyone has their favourites. some people like to use sandcastles some people like to use trains going in and out of tunnels I'm a I used to use soup with flipping ice cubes and fire cubes going into the soup and all that kind of stuff and whilst I completely recognize a good analogy is is can be absolutely brilliant there's a danger sometimes I think that kids can either get too attached to an analogy or an analogy doesn't have sufficient range to cover all of the subjects you end up having to kind of pick and choose different analogies for, for different aspects do you have any as I say favorite analogies or any analogies that perhaps you used to use or used to think were good that now you're a bit wary of uh,
1: Yeah, yes so neg- yeah, negative number is a great one A um, minefield, because I think like the best analogies are the ones that come with as little baggage as possible <laughs> yes um, so like you know a thermometer can be a really good simple analogy for like uh, helping students to understand like, uh, like negative numbers um, and you, you're absolutely right that it's important to remember that an analogy is only a model and the reason it's an analogy is because it's not the real thing <laughs> like that's, you know, the definition of an analogy is it's like it's it's got a lot of the features of the actual concept but not yes. the concept and so Like, that's why analogies and concrete models are only really useful at this, like, the early stages of understanding. And at a certain point, you've got to shed those analogies um, or help your students to shed those analogies once they've made that connection and they're starting to build up a more, like, concrete or more isolated understanding of that concept. Um, And, you know, ways you can do that are just by explicitly making it really clear to them, like, how the analogy is limited where it breaks down where it doesn't hold true um but that only like works once they've got a, a like a decent grasp of the thing you're, they're trying to learn um and i say like you know the the original question was about like which types of you know what, what kinds of which modes of information um are best and so we've talked about like analogy and, and concrete representations um are really good at the start of the learning journey but actually like Like later on down the line, when students become um, knowledgeable about a topic, then those things can actually kind of interfere with their understanding. And sometimes like more semantic representations or more abstract representations can just be more powerful for them. So I think, again, like often the answer we have to many of the decisions we have to make in the classroom comes back to, like, what do our pupils already know? And what are they ready for? What do they need next in their in their journey towards a deeper and more durable understanding? Um, and so, like, taking back the clock, so your, your question was about, like, working memory and what can we do? Sure. Of the things we can do is think carefully about the mode of information we use. Um, but then, you know, the, the other obvious thing is, is just thinking really carefully about um, not giving our students too many things to think about. And, yeah, so, like, yeah, I've seen a lot of, of instances in the classroom where teachers um, lean a little bit too heavily on talk as a mode of communication and as a result what happens is they force their pupils to hold a lot of information in their heads whilst also trying to manipulate and make sense of that information and that's just there's just I guess a really, really big ask. I guess really hard to ask of anybody, especially when it's not something that you're like you're knowledgeable about. And so like that's why often you'll see the the most experienced teachers will throw as much information as they can up on the whiteboard and encourage students to do the same. Like that's why workings out or showing your workings out is, is such a powerful strategy because you no longer have to hold that information in your head and you can like devote much more mental capacity that limited working memory to thinking about like the next steps in the problem
0: i'm, I'm really glad you've mentioned this peps because th- this is something that's that's confused me for a long time and again i'm hoping you're the man to to clear this up for me and it can we get round the limits of working memory simply by writing things down? And, and the reason I ask this is is often an, an example that's used to show the limits of working memory and and the importance of knowledge and having things automated for, from long term memory, is to give students some some kind of complex. well reasonably tricky multiplication uh, to do in their head. Something like I don't know forty eight times six and for for experts and um, for, for I'd assume most people listening that wouldn't be too cognitively demanding for to, to do in your head and um, as long as you've got your your times tables automated and you, you can process you can process it without too much strain on working memory whereas a student who doesn't have those times tables automated um, and has to kind of work all those out will really really struggle to do it in working memory and experience cognitive overload and and all the negative things that, that, that come with that but if that's student can can write it down write down each step of it, it do they not get round the limits of working memory and to take that a step further if students can always write down and show workings out and I, I'm, I'm really pushing it to the limit here perhaps and i'm not saying i believe this but just to play devil's advocate if students can write everything down does it kind of almost lessen the importance of having things automated and having things available and accessible in working memory because you can essentially transfer things that you need to hold onto paper. I don't know if that makes sense, but what's we'll your take on that?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's... Um, because it's a useful strategy for anyone, writing things down, because it just frees up more mental capacity to to, to think about more things. Um, um, I think, like... There's there's definitely value in having, auto, like knowledge, automatically stored at your fingertips. Because like thinking back to our, our earlier conversations about problem solving, um, if you if you have to think about things in such a way that you need to write them down in order for them to make sense for you, then your problem solving is going to be like super inefficient and really slow, and. Problem solving, like what I understand about problem solving, is that it's it's a kind of a, a big search exercise where you're searching through your long term memory for like solutions that may be able to solve that 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 might be relevant to that problem, um, and so like the quicker you're able to search through that library of potential solutions, the quicker you're going to be able to solve that problem. Um, like writing down stuff will allow you to devote more capacity to that search, but unless you've got the stuff there in the first place, then yeah you, you you're still going to struggle
0: got it and can i ask as well as well Peps? because just talking talking about this it, i i've completely changed the way i present worked examples these days based on my reading and my, my limited understanding of, of working memory and long-term memory but it's just struck me what what you said there about how you kind of throw up as much on the board as you can and, and encourage kids to do the same and um, in their books would you be able to just talk us through in as much detail as as you like or as brief as you like how would you these days with with all the reading that you've done and and all that you know now how would you deliver a worked example to to students perhaps
1: Um, i would i would write it up on the board using my hand. <laughs> yep. So, so yeah, so I'd, I wouldn't use an interactive whiteboard. I just give me a whiteboard and a pen or a couple of different pens of different colors. And so I'd write it up um, on the board or even possibly even better use a visualizer. Um, so that they are experiencing that model, this, the model of the solution firsthand or as closely as possible to being firsthand. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd talk through each step of that model um, I, I, like slowly and clearly
0: and um, can i ask can i ask, are you asking questions and i know i'm throwing you this throwing this yeah. one out of your peps but are you um are you asking questions of the kids are you asking what do you think i would do next what's my next step or, or are you just purely modeling it yourself
1: so you've got to think about like what's the purpose what's, Yes. what was the what are we trying to achieve here we're trying to get pupils to think about these different things And so, like, your first response might be, actually, it's better not to ask any questions, to just show them the different steps and to get them to focus on those things. However, the only, like, there is sometimes a value in asking questions in that moment, Um, particularly if what you're trying to do is to, like, help them see the connection between what you're showing and something they already know, and, like, where pupils aren't always able to make that connection intuitively. Like it's obvious to us (laughs) as teachers. We've kind of like that connection is forged and it's forged like being consolidated really strong. But like that's just not those things just aren't obvious the first time you see anything. And we know that when we learn any new thing. And so when you ask a student a question, what you do is you kind of activate a particular area of their long term memory and then the next thing you show them will is more likely to like connect to that thing you've just activated. So so questioning can kind of like allow you to be more precise in the different kinds of connections that you build in a student's long-term
0: memory. Ah, that's that's interesting. And uh, the the reason I ask is cause. Well, one of the big changes and this is this, this, it could all kick off now, perhaps one of the big changes that that I've made to my teaching is I tend to ask less questions during the presentation of a worked example, purely because I, what I tended to find was that worked examples were taking 10 or 15 minutes and there was just kind of wrong answers floating around from kids left, right and center. And I was kind of holding out for a kid to say the exact thing I wanted them to say and so on. And it just became a bit of a discussion and, and a debate that. I think led to more confusion and did more harm than good than if I just simply explained it myself in words that I'd carefully prepared and gave the kids what I felt the best chance to to understand that would be and then if there was difficulties after that then let's have questions and let's have a discussion then but let's give the kids the best chance to explain it by as I say either demonstrating it in silence first or me taking the lead and and explaining it in my own words. but Yeah. So, what what do you think? Pep? Should I should I start bringing more questions back, or it's difficult, isn't it?
1: No, I, I'd agree. I think like the way you, the way you've constructed that experience makes a lot of sense, um, and that's what I would do as well. I think like the the value of the the questions or questions can be really valuable, like before you show that model to help locate their 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 thinking or like you know move their understanding to a particular place. Um, like basically you want to re- to activate their prior knowledge around the thing you're just about to explain so that it's kind of warmed up and ready to, yes. <laughs> ready to be built upon um, but yeah during the model itself like I probably just keep questions too yeah I would just yeah no need they don't necessarily help and I think like behind all this is you know in mass teaching questioning is often one of these things that gets thrown around But but I'm not sure like we really have a a fully developed understanding of questioning itself Um, and you know I've been to sessions before that are around like helping you become a better questioner and asking higher order questions things like this and I think like a good question depends on the thing that you're trying to achieve on a purpose and so like if you're trying to help a student to make a connection between two things then there's a particular type of question that will help you to achieve that whereas if you're trying to help the student to just consolidate a connection then there's a different type of question will enable you to do that better and so I think like there's no such thing as a good question there's only a good question for a particular purpose
0: yeah i like that yeah very very true and again i i think i think i must have been to the same sessions perhaps because for for five or six years i was convinced that closed questions were bad questions and open questions were good questions and it's it's definitely not that simple you can have a very very good closed question that enables you to uh, quickly assess understanding of, of 30 kids. And for me, that would be a diagnostic question or sort of something similar. And likewise, you can have a very, very bad open question, which confuses the kids, which very hard to get any data, meaningful data from, um, and, and which kind of serves no purpose whatsoever. So yeah, I think questioning is yeah another obsession of mine and something that I feel as teachers... Yeah, we we need to really think and consider. Um, you, again, this is probably a stupid question, but I like how do you, how do you get better at asking questions? I mean, what 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 did you do in in your career to to improve you knowing which question was appropriate to ask at which time?
1: So yeah, I think um, for people wanting to get, to get better at the questioning, I think like two things. Um, firstly, I'd say like. Ask less questions, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> put, put, put more thought into like the questions. And in terms of like putting more thought into the questions, you got to ask yourself what purpose is this question you're trying to serve. And like the answer to that should like always be what do I want them? Or the question under that question should always be what do I want them to be thinking about when I ask this question? Um, and like it sort of circles back to that piece on around attention. And like you know, we're like what teachers are are really like directors of attention. What we do is we try to harness people's attention and direct it to specific things in order to help them think about the right things and make progress. Um, And one of the ways we do that is present information on the board and tell stories and show things and like um, you know um, like help students to tap into each other's understanding, but There are times where we also have to direct students' attention inwards towards their own long-term memory and their own understandings. And the best way to do that is by asking a question. Because what you do whenever you ask a question is immediately direct someone to think about what they know. And so if I say to you, like, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Like, your attention immediately gets directed towards that <laughs> yes. and if i change that question like even subtly to say why did you have that for breakfast this morning then i direct your attention to to that and those like those really, like two really subtle differences in that question like send your attention to two very different areas of your long-term memory and so i think like thinking carefully about the purpose that you want your questions to serve in terms of where you want people's attention to be what you want them to think about is just like a really good discipline to get into fantastic
0: and you mentioned earlier on peps that one thing that you'd kind of scratch the surface of and that you really wanted to, to to dig into more when when you wrote the book um about memorable teaching was variation theory and i wonder if you could just talk to talk to us a little bit about that like what is what is good variation what's bad variation and, and why is it important for memory
1: yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm like particularly qualified to say what good variation and bad variation is. Mm, I think it's like, it feels like a very undeveloped field at the minute, yes. but one that just has huge promise. Yes. Um, and it just like, well, what what is? I think the first question we got to ask is what is variation and why on earth would we use it? What does it achieve? Um, and so like, what variation is is. Well, it can, it can exist in a number of different, like, ways in a lesson. So, for example, it might be a conceptual variation where you present, like, the, the variations of a concept that you're trying to help pupils to understand, you know, the classic Engelman example. Um, and big shout-out to Chris Bolton here for introducing me to, to Engelman and a lot of this stuff. Um, so thanks, Chris. But, yeah, the classic example is, is the triangle and that, you know, what we want to do is to show our pupils... Um, a a number of different variations of the concept of a triangle that allow them to build an understanding of what, like, triangleness is. Yes. And and in order to do that, what we have to to show them is where, like, triangleness begins to break down. And so if you show a student, like, a, a, a triangle that has four sides and, like, help them understand that this is not a triangle, then they begin to discern... Like what is a triangle and what isn't a triangle, and that like you know a triangle is defined by its three-sidedness, and the kind of closedness of its like sides, and also like the straightness of its lines. And so if we can vary the examples we show to help our students understand when like we cross the line between things being a triangle yes. and things not being a triangle, then like they're, that's it. They're gonna they're gonna develop that understanding, and and the kind of classic. Thing that, that you see going wrong in in like in a novice teachers' classrooms is presenting a triangle, uh, like always the same triangle in the same orientation every time, um, and then you know you, you know like uh, like months later you show a triangle a pupil a triangle that's upside down and they're like no that's not a triangle <laughs> <laughs> yes just because yes. they haven't been been exposed to that and they haven't seen the full variation of what it means to be a triangle, um, and I think like what variation does uh, and this is like an interesting connection here is that like the reason it works is because it draws our attention to the things that change yes and and so early on I mentioned this earlier you know when I was talking about you at the front of the classroom moving around like naturally we our, our attention is drawn to the things that change in the environment and like showing students like a, a, a pattern of variation uh, what it does is it allows you to train their attention very specifically on the features that you want them to notice, to perceive and to build connections around and over time what you do by doing that is like help them to construct a more abstract or generalised understanding of that concept so like the first time they see a triangle on a, like a, a page it, like that. The triangle doesn't really mean anything to to them and it, like, is bound up in the context of that page and this classroom and this moment. Whereas the more triangles they see in different orientations and in different contexts, the less that triangle becomes attached to each of those contexts and the more that triangle begins to exist as, like, an isolated concept in their head. And that's what, like abstraction is and that's what generalization is and that's a really big part of what we're trying to do as math teachers is to help our pupils to develop more abstract understandings of of concepts and so that's why I think like variation theory is a really untapped area for
0: for us in the math profession. Oh, I, I agree, and I, I'm I'm pretty new to this myself, but it is it's flippy. it's absolutely transformational. It's really made me think about firstly the sequence of examples that I present kids, especially when I'm explaining a rule or a definition or a concept, and then also the sequence of practice questions um, that they get. And maybe maybe we'll touch upon that in a second. But what I wanted to ask, Peps, was just on a practical level, and I'm I'm just looking for a bit of advice here and what what is your preference for presenting something like the triangle example there would you present them these triangles and non-triangles one at a time and then just simply no discussion just putting a tick next to triangles and a cross next to non-triangles or would it be a case of you present one, then explain why it's a triangle, and then present another and explain why it's not a triangle? What what for you is the most effective way to present this variation so kids form this this deeper conceptual understanding?
1: So I think it cowboy <laughs> a cobweb answer probably, <laughs> probably the right one. It depends what they knew already. Right. And so like if they if you can use language and other words and concepts to help them like get the idea of what a triangle is more quickly then then use them um, because what you're trying to do at the end of the day here is help them build like like the connections to build an understand build an abstract understanding of what a triangle is um, like the the root of just showing pictures with a ticker across a cross um, basically cuts out the risk of th- like prior knowledge being an issue, um, but like I think you can accelerate that process if you've got a certain degree of uh, like security in your understanding about what they already know.
0: Got it. Got it. And can I can I ask as well, just on on variation theory, Peps, What are the principles behind? variations in sequences of questions is it is it a similar thing and perhaps could you give us a, an example of of what what you would consider good variation in a, either a sequence of examples um or a sequence of worked examples or a sequence of practice questions for for kids to do
1: sure and i think this is like this is definitely where i feel less confident in terms of answering this question but my my kind of hunch or my understanding of what, from what i've read and piecing together the dots, really, is that yes. what we're trying to do is to um, keep as much as possible the same and change only the things that we want to draw our people's attention to. Yes. Um, so that they can begin to understand like what can change and the thing that they're trying to do still remains the same
0: (laughs) yes yes so
1: so um, like in terms of variation in practice what what we're doing there is helping our students to understand the range of situations in which like a concept can be applied but still be useful Um, and so you know it might even be useful to as part of that pattern of variation to include Examples where it's not possible to use that concept to solve that problem or answer that question, so that they get an idea of where of the limits of that concept.
0: Would you be able to give us as as an example? <laughs>
1: oh <God>. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So in my head, I've kind of got like um, applying the like the formula for the area of a circle, right? Understanding of the relationship between diameter and area of a circle. Um, so if you've got a bunch of questions there about like okay so what happened you you know you might present them with a, a bunch of questions where you just change the radius and um, so they get to understand that you know that's a, a range of questions that can be answered using that formula and um, you might then um, give them a range of questions where you, you, you know you change the diameter so they can see see that connection as well yes. but then you might also um, give them a range of questions where you um, give them some like non-useful information like the arc length or something like that which helps them to see like the limits of that 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 formula and um, in that they need some information mm. not particularly well thought through answer like
0: no <laughs> no th- no that that makes sense. or or like give them a chord for example that isn't the the diameter yeah. or rays and stuff no i see that no that That makes a lot of sense and I'll tell you what, because again, as I've just mentioned before, I'm I'm new to this and what it's made me realize is that in in the past when I would be, and a classic example I made uh, uses fractions of an amount, um, in the past, I would teach fractions of an amount by doing worked examples and so on. And then I would literally just pick 10 random fractions of an amount questions and, and give them to give them to students. And I may use um, like Mr. Carter Math's wonderful website or, or some random question generator or just just any old 10 questions. And the kids were kids are away on those. And what I what I realized when I started reading about variation theory is that those are 10 separate questions, 10 separate entities and there's a missed opportunity there that kids there's no connection between question 1 and question 2 and one of the things from from my reading on it and I've read a lot of John Mason on this is the importance of students anticipating or forming an expectation of what the next answer is going to be. And if kids have answered question one and they see that one thing has changed between question one and question two, they form an expectation of how the answer to question two is going to relate to question one. And then if that expectation is confirmed, brilliant if it's not confirmed then potentially an even bigger learning opportunity is then they are forced to pause and think well why isn't that why isn't that the case and it stops kids going through things on autopilot and makes them makes them observe connections and um, is is that is that your understanding of variation theory in that sense when kids are essentially working through sequences of questions
1: yes yeah where there are very specific things change from one question to the next um, yeah, that draws their attention to particular particular as- aspects of the mathematical structure, um, and I think that's really interesting. I've never, I never, haven't come across that that idea of expectation before. I have to dig into some of John's like, writing around that, but it kind of makes sense and it links well with like, you know, Dylan Williams talked about the hypercorrection effect. Yes. Um, in one of your podcasts, and I think like there's yeah, I can see the I can see the overlap there, whereby students come across um, or expect something. But find something different, then actually that can help create a connection that is stronger than if they didn't have that expectation coming into it.
0: Absolutely, and I'd say the downside for 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 kind of being obsessed with this is that you just can't find questions that are good enough. You can't find sequences of questions, mm. or it's difficult to anyway that that kind of has this variation. I don't suppose you've you have a favourite source, or or you've. Or you've even kind of advice for putting together sequences of questions that, that have the kind of variation that you're looking for.
1: Yeah, like my, my advice would be to, to construct them yourself because I think there, there's a huge amount of value in thinking, like in trying to construct a, a sequence of, of variation questions, you have to really think hard about what you want your pupils to pay attention to. And that act of doing that yourself like really trains your attention on what you want them to learn and so it kind of goes back to that you know that thing right at the start about the clearer your idea of where you want your students to go the quicker you're going to be able to help them get there Um, and so like designing your own pattern of variation questions will force you to think really hard about like what's your actual end point and what's the journey towards that end point look like
0: um, I just wanted to ask you peps as well we we've talked a lot about working memory there, but uh, like long term memory is 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 obviously a, a fascinating fascinating area and you have one of my favorite quotes i flipping love it for from your book and it says our long term memory is more like a forest than a library and I think that's a absolutely beautiful way of, of of summing it up I wonder can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by that
1: yeah, so I think you know earlier on we talked a little bit about how are the models we use around long-term memory and working memory are just that, are just models, um, and like often we use analogies to help us understand these these things as well, um, and so like one of the dominant metaphors or analogies around how the memory works is like is the computational analogy. So we talk a lot about processing, and we talk a lot about like input output and retrieval and storage like these are all computational metaphors whereas i think like actually our brain is a more organic mechanism (laughs) than a computational one It's it certainly behaves in like some ways computationally but also like in many ways organically and i think like maybe a forest isn't the best analogy but it certainly does give you a sense of like how memory might Decay of its own accord over time and grow and things like that. Whereas, like you know, um, bits in a computer don't really change over time. And I think like that comes back to that that idea earlier on we talked about. Uh, it's not only important to help your pupils to build connections to build a structure of their long term memory, but we got to consolidate those connections as well. Um, because like as soon as we, um, as soon as we learn something, like very soon after that, that that memory starts to decay and as teachers like our job is to is to nurture those consolidate those connections we want students to retain over time um, and as we said earlier like to to build them to a, a level that will allow them to learn more stuff in the future and that might just be that they can recall it with ease six months down the line but like with something like times tables, actually, it's much more useful if it's like a highly rapid, effortless, automatic recall.
0: And I'll tell you what worries me, Peps. And again, I hope you can you can help me on this one. The and this was from from reading Robert Bjort's work and then speaking to to Robert and Elizabeth on on the show, and they made the point that you never forget anything completely from long-term memory. It just becomes less accessible. And I guess this fits into with your forest analogy with the decay that it's always there, but it's just less, less accessible. Now the problem with that is that's brilliant. If, What you're learning and what gets transferred to long-term memory is the correct information or the or the correct knowledge because it's always there and it's the classic things like riding a bike you think you've forgotten it but then when you when you try and do it again you you learn it a lot quicker second time around but of course the flip side of that is and this is what worries me and keeps me awake at night is that if kids learn wrong things or if they acquire misconceptions and we all know kids can get them from from loads of different places and they're in long-term memory that that they never go either. They're always there. And when I interviewed Nick Rose, he he explained it as kind of memories competing against each other within long-term memory. And the best that we can hope to do as teachers is to make the correct knowledge more accessible than the misconception or the, the, the misinformation. And is that your reading of it as well, Peps? And if so, like, what's the best way to deal with misconceptions that kids have?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's like that. That fits with what I understand of how memory works. Um, and yeah, I'd say it's like if you, um, if you want to make sure that a, a new idea or a new set of connections um, is the is is the is the thing that wins in that competition, what you got to do is make sure that those new connections drown out the old ones. Yes, and I think like. If you we jump back to our analogy of memory as a forest, um, like what we might think about are the connections between uh, different ideas as being the pathways through the forests. You know, animals might take or humans might take, and over time, like the more we consolidate those connections, the like the, the more well-worn those paths become. Um, but if we can like create a new path, just like you find out when you go like to a forest, sometimes like new paths. Emerge, just be, <laughs> for whatever reason, new things grow in the way, or whatever, or people find more efficient routes for me to be. Um, and if those new paths um, like can grow strong, then they can basically drown out the old paths.
0: Yes, got it, got it, and. We've spoken uh, for for a while on, on memory now, Peps, and I just wonder is there, is there any other key point that you, you feel that the listeners will benefit from knowing about about your reading of memory before we move on to, to teaching expertise.
1: Um, no, I think like the big thing that I'm kind of grappling with at the minute is is how things like grit and resilience and perseverance fit into um, fit into the model of working memory and long term memory. Um, and you know. I don't, Certainly, don't have a, all the answers to that, but the thing that I'm starting to understand more and more is, is that uh, it comes down to again this, this attention thing, um, and that as humans, what we attend to uh, is often what we perceive to offer the greatest offer us the greatest value, um, and uh, and underneath that is kind of like a a, a motivational aspect. So, um, like we in terms of like grit or perseverance, we will stick at those things that we want to stick at <laughs> more than other things. And the things that we want to stick at more are those things we perceive to be of more value. And so like, I wonder whether a big part of um, helping our students to be more resilient or to be more gritty or to pay more attention to things is to help them understand the value of what we're presenting them Um so I think for me, motivation lies under a lot of these these different concepts, um, but we've got a bit of work to do as a profession uh, in terms of figuring out how we can help our students to see the value of what we're getting them to learn.
0: Got it. Fantastic, and yeah, big areas of research um, ahead there. Perhaps we'll have to get you back on the show when you've you've solved <laughs> that problem. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be perfect. And, I
1: said, and just and on that, I think like behavioural behavioural science and behavioural psychology is the kind of field that's shedding a lot of light on that. You know, cognitive science has taken us a long way, but I don't think it's 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 like going to be able to help us answer some of those questions around like value and motivation. And um, behavioural science hopefully will do that
0: got it fantastic well let's turn to the last thing i want to speak to you about and i know this is a, a big area um, that you're interested in and that's teaching expertise and i want to start peps because with with perhaps a big question and i might just have to shut up for the next hour or so here this this is the big one like what 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 is an expert teacher or what does expert teaching look like
1: ah okay um just trying to think where to st- where to start on this but i think there's like um, there are a number of different ways that you can tackle this this, this question, um, uh, but even before we, we get there, I'd say that like I don't like one of the issues is that we don't necessarily have a, like a really shared understanding of what expert teaching looks like. Um, like some other professions have gone further down that road and and have more clearly specified what it means to be an expert in their profession, but in teaching. I think we have some ideas about what like which practices in terms of teaching can have more impact in certain contexts but beyond that i think we lack like an overall like, framework for describing what an expert teacher is um and so yeah so we like in terms of how we might go about tackling that um well there's sort of three three ways that i've been thinking about this the first is defining an expert as somebody who has a lot of impact in the classroom um, like an expert teacher is somebody who has a, a transformational impact on, on their pupils, like what their pupils know, how their pupils perform, the, the future life chances of their pupils and their enjoyment. Um, and that, that impact definition is like a really compelling one because I think it it like, it like focuses on the thing that we're really interested in, like the, the pupils and the change that we want to see in our pupils. But it's problematic because like the relationship between Teaching and learning is really noisy and um, like almost in- invisible, and so it's really hard to to be clear about which aspects of teaching are we leading to which aspects of learning. Yes. Uh, and as a result, it's like that definition doesn't isn't very powerful when it comes to guiding teacher development. It doesn't help us. It doesn't tell us what we need to do to help teachers get better. Yes. Um, so that's like the first way of thinking about it, is, is like the, the impact definition. Um, you could take a step back and, and instead think about what teachers do and uh, teacher practice. Like what do teachers do that makes them an expert? Um, and we can you know we can catalog a whole lot of things here um, and create. Uh, you know, you could essentially create a rubric that allows you to observe excellent teacher practice, but again, really problematic. Um, a couple of different things. You know, firstly, again, it's that indirect relationship between teaching and learning. So, like, what you think um, good teaching practice might be might not translate across all contexts. Might not even be, be true. Um, uh, but also, like, even if you can do that accurately observing teachers is just a really hard thing to do <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, there's some some really interesting studies um, showing that even if you spend a lot of time training you take expert teachers or expert observers and you spend a lot of time training them up to observe accurately and with like with minimal bias you, you know if you do that and you give them like a load of different lessons, uh, and you take a lot of different people to do the observation, you might get to a point where they start to agree <laughs> <will> be <laughs> but even if they agree, they're generally inaccurate <laughs> Jeez. And, and so so it's just really really hard like the amount of uh, investment required to get to a point where your observation is like really reliable, I'm not sure like outweighs the benefits um. On its own, on its own. I think, like, anyway, yeah. So so let's just pause there for a second and, and like, take a step further back and think about another way we might think about teacher expertise. Um, and so we've thought about, like, what teachers do, the impact they have. Um, but the other way to, like, tackle it is what teachers think about. Um, because what teachers think about is what guides what they do. And what they do then, um, like, generates the impact they have. And so the big, like... Anders Ericsson is, is kind of at the heart of this definition of expertise. He talks um, about experts as people who have vast, refined and complex mental models um, around the like their areas of, of specialism. Um, and so like what a mental model is is really like what you know and how that knowledge is organized to guide decision and action in the classroom. Um, and so that definition is much more useful in terms of helping teachers to get better because what we can say is like this is the kind of mental model that we want you to to develop but again it's like limited because it's it's quite far removed from the actual impact that teachers have so I think like at this stage I think best we can do is to try to triangulate those three definitions and use them together as a bit of a basket of measures to help us get a greater sense of of like what teaching expertise is
0: Ooh, I mean it's an absolute minefield this peps because some. I, I agree with you um, and and it's, it's interesting I'm, I'm Jane Jones is, is coming on the show the um, ch- chief and um, maths inspector for Ofsted mm-hmm. and again it's just a culture that we 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 live in as a profession that our teaching is often judged primarily on observations whether it's when we're coming to get a job or whether it's performance management or whether it's when Ofsted comes in and I know Ofsted are moving to to more kind of longer term measures but certainly if we take take a, an interview for a job that that's almost all of that decision is is based on what happens in that lesson observation so it I agree with you that, that that we need the kind of three pieces of information, but uh, is it is it not possible to discern how good a teacher is from watching them over the course of 60 minutes or a 50-minute lesson? I think you
1: can, um, but w- w- the evidence suggests that you can kind of you can sort out the good from the bad, right? <laughs> right. Um, but but beyond that, it's kind of it's difficult to achieve any kind of granularity in judgment. Um, and I think like, like what what we're what we're ta- or what I talked about earlier was really in trying to identify individual teacher expertise. I think like the more data you can gather um, uh, uh, over time, the more classes you can gather data for and the more teachers you can gather it for, like the more reliable your analysis become. Yes. But like we've got to just really be really careful about conflating those two things about saying that, you know, it is possible to tell these things. We've got a large data set and so therefore we should be able to like use observation and value-added models for individual teachers. I think we've just got to be really careful about making that, that leap. Um, there's really like... Uh, tweeted out a, a really interesting link just this week to a paper I read, which suggested that oh, it was looking into how much effect the composition of the class has on um, your your lesson observation judgments. And it was suggest- <laughs> for the particular group studied, it was suggesting that um, there was like a, a like a, a six teachers were six times more likely to be judged to be good if they had like a class of high achieving students than if they're using, uh, uh, low achieving students um and you know so that's just one of the one of the many factors that makes lesson observation uh, something we just have to be really careful about using um and especially really careful about inferring from so if we're using lesson observation to like make decisions about what teachers get paid or about whether they like. um get qualifications yeah we just got to be careful about what we can claim and make sure that any judgment we make is certainly no more precise than the error that is created by that instrument
0: it's it's really interesting isn't it because like so lesson observations are used for high stakes things like jobs performance management and so on but they're also used for for, for lower stakes when it comes to teachers looking to improve their their practice and, and a common thing in schools and we do it in our school is you kind of pair up teachers and they do joint observations with each other and so uh, and so on and, and feedback to each other and you mentioned Erickson's work there and I, I'm a big fan of, um, of the book peak and, and a lot of the work that's been done on on deliberate practice but obviously a key part of deliberate practice once you've broken down a complex skill such as teaching or, or solving simultaneous equations or whatever it is a key part as much as I, I've read into it anyway is is the feedback that's given the feedback on how you've performed on that skill and crucially what you can do to improve and we see this in sport we see this in music and so on but if we if if lesson observations are I don't know if is the right word but certainly not the most reliable uh, way of, of judging expertise can we in fact use those principles of, of deliberate practice can we use lesson observations to help teachers improve and become expert teachers
1: right yeah i think it's really big like really important question um, because if we don't know where we're headed then actually you know feedback can't take us in the right direction <laughs> yes um, and so i think that's why we've got work to do to specify what expertise looks like in our profession before before we spend time thinking about like oh, or before we invest time in helping teachers to get there and um, yes so i think there's like a real it's, it's worth front loading that that, that 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 research exercise um, and i think like t- taking t- taking a step back to that the the kind of um three-part model of of expertise one of the things that I think would be really interesting for us to do as a profession is to not just use lesson observations to help guide teacher development, but to use things like think aloud protocols um, where, for example, you ask a teacher to um, not only teach a lesson, you might record it and then you might ask them to like talk through their thinking. W- what decisions did they make during that lesson and why? And yes. what kind of models do they... like? Because what you're trying to do is is get at their mental models and assess their mental models. Because if you can assess their mental models alongside what they do in the classroom and then perhaps the impact of what they do, then I think you might begin to to build a slightly more robust understanding of where they're at and how they might improve. But in order to help them improve, you've got to have this. You've got to have what Daisy Custodulo talks about. uh, You've got to have a progression model. We've got to have... An idea of the steps that teachers need to go through to get from novice to expert, and I think that's like (laughs) that's just something that we've got a lot of work to do on, Um, but that we are like trying hard to 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 work on um, at the Institute for Teaching. Um, And I think like really it's really interesting to look sideways at other professions that have tried to crack this, that have tried to think more deeply about what expertise is and how to build expertise at scale and although like medicine certainly uh, there are a lot of differences between like being a doctor and being a teacher I think it's really instructive to look at uh, fields such as medicine to see just like how they've gone about solving that problem um, and like to in a very crude way like how doctors become experts is by learning a, a body of underpinning knowledge so they like learn about human biology and anatomy and physiology and then what they do is they reorganise that knowledge in their minds around their practice, around the cues that they get from patients. So over time, what they have is um, they're able to like read a patient or take a set of clues about a patient and be able to infer a diagnosis that is based on rigorous underpinning scientific principles. And, you know, kind of like we can, we can step right back to the engineering analogy and see like the similarities there. Like what doctors have uh, is like an underpinning body of knowledge that they can use, underpinning set of principles about how the body works uh, um, that they use in kind of creative ways to solve every, each unique problem they, they are presented with. Because each patient that comes along is unique, they look different, but what they can do is they use those underpinning principles to help reach a diagnosis. Um, And I wonder whether as a teaching profession, like whether that model could help us to build expertise more systematically. Um, And if so, I think the big questions for us are what on earth might that underpinning body of knowledge look like? Um, We've got some insights into how it might be developed. I think deliberate practice is a really powerful vehicle for that. Deliberate practice helps People to reorganise their understanding and build mental models around the nuances of their practice, but you've got to have something to learn in the first place. Um, and so that big question around, like, what might a progression model for teachers look like? What is it corrective for expertise? Um, and my hunch at the moment is that, like, cognitive science and behavioural science could be the fields that we use to undergird or underpin. Um, the mental models that teachers could build to help them become real experts in the classroom.
0: And and do you reckon the solution, Peps, is going to be for these progression models? Is it going to be a generic one or is it going to be subject-specific? And if... Because, again, my, as a biased maths teacher, I always think maths is different and maths is special and th- things that work in other subjects don't necessarily work in maths and, and vice versa. So is this expertise has it got to be judged at a subject-specific level? And even further, does it then need to be judged at a kind of primary level, different to key stage three and four, different to A level and so on? Or, or are there kind of more generic principles across all age groups and across all subjects?
1: Yeah, I think like there are there are more similarities between how we learned and differences. Um, but the like the like the subject is a really powerful context. So if you're thinking about like the bridge build, build the, the bridge building <laughs> analogy, yes, like you can use the same underpinning principles, but like the context that you're like the bridge that you're trying to build or the chasm that you're trying to cross, it, it can be very different for different subjects. And so you have to like really think differently about how, the implications of those different principles or how you might use them. And so I'd say that like yes. And no. <laughs> so there are <laughs> certainly things, uh, you know, like our understanding about working memory and long-term memory that are relevant to all subjects. But how you apply that needs to be specific to your context. There's no point just um, like understanding those principles without understanding actually what they look like for solving equations for year nine, for this particular group. And so that's the bit like when we talked about um, how doctors... reorganize that knowledge that's the key bit for teachers is to have the underpinning understanding of how learning works but reorganize it in a way that makes sense for their particular specialist context whether that context is a subject context whether it's a phase context for primary or whether it's like a a socio-economic
0: context
1: because that's that we, we leave out the context that we leave out that i think is equally as important
0: that's very interesting. F- flipping out, Peps. Well, I, I mean, before I move on to, to reflections, is there anything else about teaching expertise that, again, you think our listeners will benefit from hearing?
1: Um, I'd just say there's some in- there's some interesting stuff when you when you start to dig into it. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about the uh, lesson observation, um, and there's a guy called Berliner who did like a really interesting study with some experts, um, where he got in to basically teach an interview lesson. <laughs> and you know these are these are like really really good teachers and everyone in the study group like was really was really frustrated afterwards uh, <laughs> like like a high proportion of them were angry uh several of them broke down crying <laughs> 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 and, and he you know he was just he was like fascinated so he dug into this and it just you know it turns out that um like being an expert involves knowing your subject knowing how pupils learn your subject but also knowing what your pupils know and what they don't know and if you like lack any of those three aspects then your expertise falls away and so that's why um you know if we take a teacher and put them in a different subject they they stop being an expert or like we remove their understanding of how like learning works they stop becoming an expert but also that's why if you take an expert and you give them a completely new class they cannot function as an expert yeah, and I think that like it raises really big questions around the interview lesson process itself but it also raises really big questions like in terms of school policy about how we assign teachers and how we move teachers and how we move classes between teachers over year groups and things like that and how we, like how much we um how much we invest in helping teachers to become specialists in particular yes. age ranges but also particular areas of content
0: You're absolutely right, and again, I I forget the study off the top of my head now, but I I certainly read something that that backed up exactly that, that suggests the best thing that you in terms of that school can do is is to keep a teacher on a particular year group um, whether they be in the old GCSE the old CD borderline specialist who would take three year 11 groups and would just develop expertise for teaching that level of achievement of students and know their kind of strengths and weaknesses and, and where to pitch explanations and so on as opposed to what happens in the vast majority of schools where for example I will go on a Tuesday from having a bottom set year seven period one and then I'll go and teach year 13 further maths period two and it's like, it's brilliant, it's a challenge but is that is that preventing me becoming an expert teacher in a specialist field and is it better to have specialists or is it better to have just generally good teachers because then you've got the flexibility if people are off and all that kind of stuff then you've, you've, you've got people who can kind of sub in and help out. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? But I think the, the conventional wisdom is that you know a maths teacher is a maths teacher and it's not the fact that you have specialist year seven teachers specialist top set year nine teachers and so on what what would you What what's your instinct perhaps? what do you think it is Is better for a school to get teachers to specialize in particular age ranges or ability ranges
1: i think it depends on what, what you know the, the human capital you have available yes at your disposal yes and what you're trying to achieve, and what the time scales are, and things like that. You know, it's, it's a real, um, it's a real cost benefit analysis over time, isn't it? You do you invest in helping a teacher to become really specialist in a narrow area, um, or do you invest in them becoming a, a more like a, a specialist in a greater area? And if so, like it's the latter, you're going to have to invest um, over a longer period of time, where they might not yes. be as effective. Um, but it might be more effective in the long run. So oh, hugely complex, <laughs> Oof, hugely complex like up. decision to make. But one, I think that you know, senior leaders should be thinking about it at the very yes,
0: um, absolutely. Just being
1: intentional about their decisions and having a good reason oh. for what they're doing.
0: Absolutely, right, Pets. Well, we've we've come to the reflection bit um, of, of the interview now. So, I just want to ask you just a couple of questions, just just, just looking back. So, the first is because uh, obviously you, you've you've done a load of reading, you've written some wonderful books yourself, and I know that educational research is is a very important part of uh, of, of your thinking. So, I wonder it may be an impossible question but if you were to pick out let's say three essential research findings or principles that you think all teachers should know or which have, have kind of benefited your thinking what what would they be um so i'd say like
1: i'd say attention is it, is it just a such a fascinating thing um and you know uh, dan willingham's talked about like, what students think about is what they learn, but I'd be really keen to to push it further um, and suggest that like what students attend to is what they learn, and it's kind of the same thing. But what it does is it reframes like that principle around information and attention, and it like helps us operationalize it a little bit more because we can almost direct attention slightly more tangibly than we can direct thinking. So I think that would be the first thing is, like, what we attend to is is what we learn um, secondly, I'd say that like, as teacher investing as much energy as possible in understanding what your pupils know and don't know before you sit down to do any teaching is, like, is probably the best use of your time Yes. Um, yeah all too often I, I see teachers who just come in to teach something without having really thought about what their pupils know and don't know, and it's it's really is just a bit of a false economy
0: yeah i agree and just on that i mean dylan william has a catalogue of an amazing quotes but but one on that is um that the teachers should teach to what oh god i'm gonna absolutely mess this one up but it's something along the lines of i uh, should teach to what students know what not what we wish they knew or something yeah. along those not something along those lines no, but you shouldn't just yeah you know what i mean anyway <laughs> <laughs> apologies dylan if you're listening <laughs> to that <laughs>
1: but, but your best quote yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then I think the final thing is like just stepping back from all this is that I really do think that uh, the, the, uh, the quality of teaching that we can offer rests heavily on our understanding of how learning works. And, you know, that that's why I'm so heavily invested in, in this idea that helping teachers to understand the mechanics of memory and, like, the, 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 the science of cognition and behavioral psychology is just such a good investment because the better we understand those things i think like the more flexible and adaptive and more robust
0: we will be as teachers got it fantastic and i wonder peps as well is is there any piece of research that you've come across that has surprised you that's perhaps been particularly counterintuitive or that's just something that's made you think oh flipping heck I, i didn't see that coming
1: so one of the things I came across um, when I was looking into memory is this idea that um, sometimes, like sometimes, you, you, your memories of things strengthen <laughs> initially, uh, even though you you don't do anything to consolidate them. Consolidate them so you don't do any retrieval. Um, and I think like uh, um, Dida and, and Rose write about this in their their great book. What uh, all the psychology that teachers need to know I can't quite remember the title but they've got a good chapter in this in there um, but I've always struggled to reconcile that you know why what's the mechanism that underpins that why do memories get stronger for a small period of time and I think like the the, the and I just clearly need to do more reading on this but my my my, my hypothesis is that I'd like to find out more about is that um, memories are an organic thing. Uh, or you know, you know our brain is an organic mechanism and so in some ways although like uh, our nervous system is very different to our musculature system I, I wonder whether there are similar mechanisms of growth going on there um like when you go to the gym and you work out what you do is you like uh, stress your muscles and then when you rest or uh, let them recover what they do is they grow and i'd be really interested to know whether the seems going on um at a neuronal level, whether like after activating our neurons, that the growth or that consolidation actually happens after that um, and whether it takes like you know twenty four to forty eight hours afterwards. Some interesting stuff around myelination that I need to look into and understand more about.
0: Flipping X that so that would have that would have quite significant implications if, if that was the case, right?
1: Well it just it, it like would it would help us to make sense of retrieval practice as well yes and in that you know because um you know there's there's some really good and interesting evidence around how people can develop their certain types of fitness better through like interval training and there's just some really strong resonances there with retrieval practice so like you know in in the, the physical training context it's like you you stress your muscles and then you give them an optimum time to recover and then you stress your muscles and you provide an optimum time to recover Um, and I think like we can all see the overlaps with like distributed practice and I just wonder whether like the mechanism how similar the mechanism that underpins both of those processes and if so like what we can learn from uh, fitness training that we could use to help us teach better
0: That yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. That um, I wonder, Peps as well, because a lot of guests like to to recommend uh, books that teachers should read. And I I know you've got some of your own classics out that we'll we'll certainly link to um in the show notes. Um, are there any other books that you um you would recommend that teachers should read?
1: Uh, well, I I think like Why Don't Students Like School by Dan Willingham. I'd put, yeah, it's just like changed my. <laughs> changed yes, my, me too. Changed my my teaching life. Um, really well written. Loads of powerful examples. Uh, yeah, it's it's just a great starting point. Um, I'd say that like "Make It Stick" by the Heath Brothers is is there like a really good starting piece um, in terms of thinking about behavioral psychology. Um, it's like a book about change and how you can manage change. Um, in like a slightly more nuanced way, so I'd highly recommend that. So let's make it stick by the Heath Brothers. It might even just be called Stick by the Heath Brothers, I'm not sure. Um, And then finally, uh, not so much a book, but a set of papers um, by uh, an organisation called Deans for Impact. um, They wrote a couple of papers recently. One's called The Science of Learning, which is fab, overlaps a lot with some of Dan Willingham's stuff but more recently they wrote a paper called the um, practice with purpose the science of developing teacher expertise Um, and I think that does a really good job of very clearly and concisely outlining how deliberate practice might be used to
0: help teachers get better fantastic they're, they're excellent choices and there'll be links to those in the show notes as well as links to book recommendations from what from all previous guests and the last question from me perhaps, and i'm going to hand over to you for your big three is and you may already have covered this but i wonder is there anything you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now
1: <laughs> all of it <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really it's a really hard thing to like Uh, live with isn't it that yes like the more stuff that you understand about all of this stuff like the the harder (laughs) it is to live with the way you used to practice (laughs)
0: yes (laughs) absolutely
1: and like hopefully that will never change uh you know it wouldn't ideally wouldn't be that way but at the same time like you hope that um our growth and understanding continues to evolve so that we always feel guilty about how we used to teach
0: yeah it's, it's it's a frustrating one isn't it and again I've, I've made this point many times it's a classic Dunning-Kruger effect the more I read the the, the more I feel the less I understand but the, the more as you say regret I think regret is, is is the word I would use I just I regret the time I wasted I regret <laughs> the I regret the the less of an impact I think I had on kids learning um I regret the times I blamed kids for not understanding things when when I look back at it it was probably my fault I mean lots of times it was definitely their fault but there was definitely some times when I could have done things done things better and it's it's frustrating not it but as you say it's it is what keeps people moving forward and and helps the professional along this path towards expertise but it's yeah it's it's tricky looking back isn't it perhaps? yeah
1: but I think you know you know you might regret but also I think it's really important to be grateful like really deeply grateful for like the times that we live in, it's like the best possible time to be a teacher. It's incredible. Yes. There's so much like knowledge available at our fingertips. Like I know there, like it's a challenging job to do. It's like huge amounts of work to be done, but like in terms of growth and development as a person, oh, it's just so much to be learned. And that's a beautiful, beautiful place to be
0: that's nice i like that nice nice positive end to the reflection there perhaps i love that well now it's time for me to to hand over to you for your big three so i wonder what three websites or blog posts or whatever you like would you direct listeners to and i'll put links to these in the show notes uh
1: probably favorite three things recently um john sweller wrote a a piece in the tes that uh, sites like of Geary's work, which we haven't had a chance to talk about today, so I think that would be a great um, complement to this discussion. Um, So I'll send you a link to that. Uh, David Wees is doing some really interesting stuff over in uh, the US. He's worked with um, uh, the public schools in New York to develop a set of instructional activities around mathematics to help teachers get better. So that's really interesting, cutting edge stuff. Um, I'll fire you a link to that. And then finally, um, I would encourage your listeners to keep an eye out on the Institute for Teaching website. Um, We're going to be releasing uh, a number of papers over the coming months that distill our thinking around expertise and professional development. Um, And I think, yeah, it'd be really great to have, to open that conversation up a little bit. always really fascinated to talk about this stuff and so yeah keen to hear what people think
0: that's fantastic and well peps that's that's brought us to the end of the interview so all that's left me to do is well thank you for two things really firstly is for, for your time today this is it's been another epic, but it has just been sprinkled with absolute gold every few seconds, really. So I'm gonna—I know this is gonna be one of those that I have to listen to three or four times, and I'm sure it'll be the same for for our listeners. So, so thank you for your time there, and just thank you for for all the work you do um, as well. It's it's great to follow you on Twitter. I, I love it when you direct my attention to a research paper that I haven't seen, and your your books are fantastic. What what I and I don't just say this to all my guests. But what I think it <laughs> <laughs> what I I like about your books is and this may sound like a criticism but the the short right like it, and i think they're deliberately that that way that they're, they're short they're concise there's no fluff going on around there it is right to the heart of the matter and and that's great because it appeals to the time poor teacher like like we all are but it means that you know that everything you read is you've thought carefully about whether it should be included in there and i just get the feeling that any redundant words have just been chopped <laughs> and you've gone right for the heart of the matter so the wonderful and memorable teaching is is an absolutely wonderful book so yeah thank you for writing those peps and and keep up the good work
1: thanks greg have a good one
0: So there you have it. There was my interview with Peps McRae. I really hope you enjoyed that one and found it as useful and as thought-provoking as I did. Once again, I had a flipping ball speaking to Peps. And where to start with the takeaway once again so much stuff to think about I guess the first thing I want to clear up is that quote from Dylan William that absolutely messed up during the interview it goes like this we need to start from where the learner is not where we would like the learner to be so once again apologies Dylan but I think that's an absolutely wonderful quote um, in terms of takeaways from what Peps and I talked about, I, I really could chat about this all day, but I'm going to try and limit myself to two big ones. The first is is the message that Peps talked about in his lesson planning, that take the shortest path. And I tell you what, I have been the world's worst at this when I, when I think back at it. I used to think bigger and more elaborate is best. So, for example, if I was teaching kids how to add fractions together... I will go, go to town on it, really. There'll be different representations. Where I'll be encouraging kids to discuss it, discover it, convince me why it's the case, convince me why it's not the case, blah, blah, blah. And this is great, but it would take good 20, 25 minutes And in the midst of all that, there's misconceptions floating around, we're discussing them, kids are getting confused and so on. But I've come to the realisation, and Pep's really reinforced that, that let's just take the shortest path. Let's think what we want our kids to be able to do. In my, my case, I wanted them to be able to add two fractions together. Let's think about the most efficient and effective way of doing it. And the more I come to think about it, it is a worked example, or using the interview with Greg Ashman, the example problem pair approach, followed by the intelligent practice based on variation theory that Peps and I discuss and I'll be digging into more with Chris Bolton when he returns to the show. That is the most effective way of getting kids to do that. Now, sure. At the end of that process, once they've listened to the worked example, had a go at the related problem and then tried the intelligent practice. If they're confused there and there's misconceptions, that's the time, I think, to have that discussion. But let's give kids the best opportunity to understand something. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's take the shortest path to getting them there. So that, I think that's such an important one, certainly for me to take on board anyway. Bigger and elaborate is not always best. And related to that um, is is Pep's, I I love this, a little modification he made to one of my all-time favourite quotes uh, by Daniel Willingham. So not students remember what they think about, but students remember what they attend to. And Pep's justification for that modification, which I think is a really useful one, is that it's perhaps easier to think about directing attention more than thinking. And we talked about a couple of things in, in the in the interview that I, I just want to go over again quickly. I mean, <coughs> posters and powerpoints is a, is an absolute classic, and it is related to taking the shortest path. This. If we want kids revising, I'll say adding fractions again because I've I've no imagination. If we want kids revising adding fractions, let's not get them making a poster about it or designing a PowerPoint about it. Because they're going to be thinking about the pens, the animation, the font, all kinds of stuff like that. Let's get them just practicing retrieval. Let's get them practicing adding fractions together. And then sure, let's have a discussion about where they struggled and advice and all that kind of thing. But again, let's take the shortest path to where, where we want the kids to be. And Tarsier as well, it's a shame I was I was massive into Tarsier, as people know I'm very proud, the world's largest collection of Tarsier jigsaws, I think I'm up to about 1,200, but certainly running Tarsiers in the way I used to, where kids were cutting out the pieces and all that kind of stuff. It's too time consuming. Kids get concerned about the neatness of the triangles. There are flipping scissors bombing around everywhere. It is not the shortest path to what I want them to be able to do. So is in the traditional way of gone for me. Tarzi is in the convince me way when we do it working backwards. And I'll probably I've, I've spoken about this in, in workshops, but maybe I'll cover this on, on a later podcast or something. I'm a fan of, but is in the traditional way of cutting out jigsaws and so on. I'm starting to to move away from them, I'll be honest. And finally, loop cards. I'd never considered this until um, Pep's discovered it, but there's a couple of fundamental problems with loop cards. And if you're not familiar with how loop cards work, essentially every child gets a little slip of paper. There's a question on it and an answer on it. Um, and the idea is that um, the child waits to hear their answer from a, a previous child and then attempts to answer their question on the card and then they shout out their answer, which then cues up another child around the class who's got that corresponding card and so on. And it goes round in a loop. Now, this is great, but there's a, there's a couple of problems with this. Firstly, there's children are sat there thinking, when's my turn coming? When's my turn coming? And that, even though it sounds like a small thing, there's, that's actually a bit of a strain on working memory it's di- diverting attention towards thinking about the maths then there's a potential for anxiety the fact that you've got to share your answer with the rest of the class and how they're going to say it and all that kind of stuff then there's the problem of what happens when you've said your answer where's your incentive to keep listening there So things like that, things that I I used to do that I used to think were engaging and motivating, I'm I'm kind of moving away from now because I'm convinced, and I've spoke about this on, on many interviews, that the key driver of motivation is success or the perception that students can be successful And I think we can do that by getting them doing more questions, more intelligently planned questions, inducing retrieval, taking account and advantage of all uh, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork's desirable difficulties that we talked about on that podcast and so on. So, yeah, take the shortest path. I'm certainly taking that away from the interview. And the final thing I just wanted to talk about um, is, yeah, just... uh, pepsi's point that classrooms are awash with information and i think he's spot on there and I've, I've never really considered just how much information is bombing around in your average maths classroom so i made a little note um of some of the things and here's what i got um there's my voice or the students voices background noise displays on the wall text numbers symbols on the board and on worksheets the layout of problems gestures movement anxiety And there's probably more than that. And and filtering out any or all of these things is really effortful. It, again, diverts attention away from things that matter. And cognitive load theory, f- for me, is all about reducing um, th- this extraneous load, this this unhelpful, distracting information. And a couple of practical things that that Peps and I talked about um, were firstly silent teacher, and I- I'm obsessed by this now. I'm absolutely convinced that that presenting examples in silence is a really, really beneficial thing to do. Students watching, they're not writing anything down, they're not talking, they're not asking questions. They are purely attending to what I am doing on the board, and and I love the way Peps did the movie theatre analogy. And I'm thinking now, let's, let, let's take silent teachers in the movies. Let's dim the lights. Let's close the blinds. Let's get a bit of dramatic music on. And then let's cut to that silent teacher presentation where the kids have got nothing else to look at whatsoever, apart from what I'm doing on the board. And then finally, and we have to talk about it, displays. I've been doing a few talks recently and it's all been kicking off when I've been chatting about displays. I'm on a campaign, get rid of displays in maths classrooms. Nobody's on board with this campaign with me. It's kind of a one-man show at the moment. But here's here's my justification. Displays are inherently full of redundant information that kids have to either ignore or effortly filter out. And they're all over it. You see them all over classrooms, pictures of mathematicians, keywords and all this kind of stuff. And there are three things. And I I talk about this um, in in the book that I mentioned at the start and how I wish I'd taught maths. There are three things teachers say to me whenever, (laughs) whenever I try and get displays banned. And I just want to go through them very quickly here. So first thing people say is, well, things like number lines, fraction walls and mathematical definitions are really useful to have around the classroom. Now sure they are. That, that's very, very true. But they're not useful all the time, right? So a number line isn't going to be that useful when students are working out the mean from, from group frequency or fraction walls are not going to be that useful whenever we're doing circle theorems. So my argument to 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 that one is let let's just if if we're gonna use them because they're useful. Let's just use them when we need them. So if we're doing fractions, let's project up or stick up on the board a fraction wall. If we're doing negative numbers or whatever or decimals or place value, all right, let's stick up a number line. But let's only use them when they're directly relevant to the mathematical content of the lesson. Otherwise, they're going to be distracting attention away from what we're talking about. Next thing people say, and it all kicks off with this one, good displays help students remember key information. So they're great to have. It's it's almost kind of this idea that subliminal advertising, they're they're round so people are seeing them, so they're remembering number lines and keywords and all that kind of stuff. Now, again, that is very, very true, and that is a definite benefit of having it. But also, is there a chance that students become too dependent on knowing that that information's there? Now, again, when I spoke to Robert Bjork and some of my other guests, the the key thing is testing retrieval. If we want to enhance memory retention and all that kind of stuff, we've got to induce students to retrieve things. And if students know that, for example, all the prime numbers are on a poster in their maths classroom and the formula for the area of and circumference of a circle is on a poster in their maths classroom, where's the incentive to remember it? And then what tends to happen is when students find themselves um, in an exam without that crutch, without that uh, poster available there, they can't remember it. So what I'm a fan of instead, let's remove them. Sure, let's have them have this information in knowledge organisers or on a sheet ready to hand out to students. But let's give them the opportunity to induce retrieval first. Let's give them the opportunity to try to remember it because that that process of trying to remember it is going to be beneficial to their long term learning and retention. And the final thing people say is, I can't get rid of posters and displays because my senior leadership team won't like it. Well, there's not a lot I can do about that. I don't think my senior leadership team will like it either, but I am convinced it's best for learning. So I'm keeping this campaign going. Send me a t- uh, send me a tweet if you want to get involved as well anyway that's brought us to the end of the show all that remains for me to do is once again thank peps McCrae. what a wonderful guest go out and get his books memorable teaching and lean lesson planning absolutely superb as i said to him and i honestly didn't mean this as a criticism they are short they are brief every flipping word matters in them so they're absolutely perfect they're really really good books so so go out and go out and snap those up um i also want to thank PodcastThemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show and of course who could forget my love loyal listeners thank you so much for, for downloading these podcasts and for the kind words you say um, and as I say share this one around I really think that it's going to be of benefit to non-maths colleagues and if you get chance to drop us a review on iTunes you know I would be eternally grateful I've got some wonderful guests lined up for the next few episodes you may have seen a sneak preview of those on Twitter I cannot flipping wait so I will look forward to speaking to you soon take care of yourselves and bye for now